boys and girls. What an episode. This episode won the internet, Spencer. Did it win you? I, I, I adored it. I thought it was a wonderfully done episode that was an odd mix of like the first first 15 minutes of Up just smushed with San Junipero is set in a zombie apocalypse. I was in. It was did great. Did you just come up with what? that or did you were you were you shooing on that one? I'm drawing from different sources to put that together the way I usually do with my creativity. That was wonderful. That was a really solid explanation of what it was, Spencer. We started uh, out strong. But I, mean, I, I thought it was well acted. I thought it was a nice bottle episode in the middle of a bro- broader plot. I thought it connected into it in fun ways as well as showed the passage of time. I thought it was a, a pre- this is the kind of prestige television that you want and expect out of HBO. But I, honestly, I don't know if I'm ready for your negativity. I mean, you have been on this show so hard right now. You've been riding it constantly as being, you know, the fastest chicken at NASCAR, whatever you said last time. You've been criticizing it just being not your cup of tea with the the internet on board for this. I, I don't know if I can deal with you pissing on it this episode. I just don't know if I can, man. Well, I know what you're doing, uh, but you, what am I doing, man? You, you've set me up. You, you box me in. There's no win situation. Look, this episode was really good television. You know, I, I'm a dope. I would be a dope to get on here and tell you it's not. I still don't like the premise of a zombie show. I'm still not super interested in zombies attacking us and that being the existential threat and the fact that half, not half, 95% of humanity is gone. All of that I still have a, a huge problem with. But like this episode told a different story and it told it brilliantly mm-hmm. and it told it it mostly in a way that was emotionally impactful. I absolutely loved it. It was one of the best things I've watched on television in a long time. And I feel like because it is a sort of swerve, it's a sort of side story of the main plot. I feel like I can say that without being inconsistent about my criticisms of the show, which is that like I don't need another zombie movie. You know what I do need, though? I do need, in the middle of the world ending, a really particular, unique, heartening, dramatic, tragic love story. And that is mm-hmm. what that was, and I absolutely adored it. Loved yeah, it. I, Loved it. I, yeah, I, it, it. These kind of little human personal stories are comedy enough to apocalypse fiction. They're not required to be in it, but in some ways I think it almost sets a more interesting example for them just because they're it allows them to be removed from the world and just with each just with just with each other but i it was a wonderfully done episode i want them to do more little bottle episodes like this that are different from the video game expanding on the video game changing the video game give me stuff like this that show that there are really skilled writers with an excellent idea of what they want the world to be and how they want to tell it are here to give us quality television it's uh it's obviously scores the highest for me of the episodes this season. It gives me a lot of faith that even though I don't like the premise of the show and that I'm not invested in what, you know, the last remnants of humanity are doing when everybody else died, that they're still going to be able to entertain me in a really impactful way. Not just in a, oh man, I'm, I'm glad this is on in the background, but in a, I can, I can actually lock in and enjoy this. And so that to me was a, a swerve from the show because I did not necessarily expect the show to be able to suck me in in the way this episode did. So shout out to the show for that. I give, uh, I give it a round of applause. Quiz question, by the way, though you are rating this your highest episode, I'm rating this my highest episode. Critics around the internet and proper print are rating this the highest episode. How much lower do you think this episode ranked on IMDb compared to its two peers? It should be higher. I don't, that confuses me. Significantly lower. How? Like, uh, I'll give you three guesses. Oh, oh, because of the gay thing? 
The gay thing, they changed the plot from the video game and the main characters weren't in focus. I don't, those like, I those don't, common criticisms. Here's the thing. like If you if you can't watch this and and care that these two people love each other and be like to feel emotion and to care for them and to be happy that they found love in this absolutely tragic, devastated, crazy world. If, mm-hmm. if, if your homophobia stops you from being able to do that, I got nothing for you. Like I can't, <clears throat> me and you are not going to be able to talk about this episode or maybe a lot of different things because that to me is, is just, that's like, um, that's like watching avatar and being like, you know what, man, like that's a man. I'm just not into cartoons. Like if I hear somebody say some <laughs> shit like that with Avatar, I'm like, okay, well then you and I just aren't watching. We don't intake things the same way. So if, if your homophobia prevented you from enjoying this episode, I almost feel bad for you because this is one of the, I mean, it's, it's amazing that they could do a love story that I cared about so much by the In end of the hour. episode that was completely contained. I didn't know these characters before the episode yeah. started. And by the time that those two were drinking the wine at the end of the episode, Bawling. I was absolutely bawling. A hundred percent. I cared about their their love story because, you know, I mean, I guess it is a little bit trite, but this concept of the whole fucking world is ending around us. But you know what? We found something. And, you know, I guess the gay thing does almost help that a little bit in the sense that you have Frank or I mean, Bill, who possibly would not have been able to find love if mm-hmm. the world hadn't ended because... Clearly, he was not an out person. He had not dated Ben before. And so maybe the collapse of the world actually allowed him to be himself a little bit more in a weird way. That, that's, a, that's a very good point to make there. It's notable that a lot of those criticisms about uh, the gay thing, as you're referring to it, uh, it, are people saying that they're accusing the show of changing the plot from the video game. It's like, oh, look at this woke bullshit. They made the characters gay. Having played the video game, it's pretty explicit that they're gay. So I don't know what to make of that either. But again, the, the, the show did it differently in a way to a degree that I'm not even going to talk about it again this episode. This is their own plot. They acknowledge that in the after shows. They wanted to do something different while accomplishing the same character purpose for what role Bill plays upon Joel. I thought they did that perfectly. And I'm not going to mention the video game again because this is its own story. This is no this is no longer beholden to the video game other than providing the setting and the inspiration for where they wanted to go. Yeah, when I say the gay thing, I'm not, I'm not talking about them. I know, I'm these, are, you these, for are, it. these are just two people who love each other, and I'm a thousand percent on board with it. I mean, all of the societal homophobia, sure. arcane, old school, dusty weirdness around the fact that two men can love each other. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Here's something I want to talk about before we get into our segments is that it started with a succession season four trailer. Spencer, can I bother <gasps> you? I, I come to you. Hat, David Copperfield, hat in hand. Please, sir, can I have some more? Can I bother you for a succession teaser pod over on our line of succession podcast? Can we jump on and talk about this teaser pod for succession? Sir, I will yeah. happily eat your chicken. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to do that over on the line of succession podcast. It's another podcast we have here on the Mango Talks podcast network where we cover succession episode by episode. We have done episode two and episode three. We will do episode four. And over on that podcast feed, we are going to review the Succession Season 4 trailer. Spencer, we just got a couple months till Succession. I'm so excited that that show's coming back. It has been so damn long. I, 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 will, have, I will have to very happily rewatch Season 3 to remember where we were. It's like Israelis and Palestinians, <laughs> except more important. <laughs> Most Tom line ever. Except more important. All right, so our segments here 
on Mangum Talks, The Last of Us are. I will start with a recap every week, heroically, beat by beat, leading in with a recap. Spencer will jump in, witty anecdote, witticisms, intellectual commentary, probably a little bit of personal journey story, maybe some some Ooh. of his background. Maybe we'll learn about Spencer today because we're talking about love. <laughs> then we will jump into best line of the episode. Spencer, every week, gamely provides me with nominees for best line of the episode. And every week, turd in the punch bowl that I am, I always pick a line that is not something that he nominated. Spencer, we have so this is the other than succession, two pages, other than two succession, because succession is its own thing as far as the dialogue, right? Like it's, yeah. it's elite, elite, the elite. It's, it's what you're watching for screenplay. But we have never covered something with better lines of the episode than this, have we? I mean, it is. There's so many put it on a T-shirt moments. I mean, we're, I have a solid page and a half, two pages of quotes just from this episode. That, that's that's early season Game of Thrones numbers we're talking about here. It is absolutely fantastic then we will go to i think we'll go to familial part of the episode so familial scene of the episode and then we will do ethical questions of the episode with professor spitzer looking forward to one uh, sad things to get out of the way and mentioned early uh the i saw over the weekend that the actress who plays tess in the video game annie, annie Wershing, she died of cancer which made the reappearance of Tess in this episode all the more bittersweet, given you now the death of the original actress and the death of the character on the show. So, fuck cancer, it sucks, but you will be missed. Glad you mentioned that. So then we go to the flashback to start the episode. Flashback, we get a whole thing about Ellie with a gun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and her wanting a gun and all that. Then it ends with Tess saying, you get her there and then you set everything right. Save who you can save. No cold opening this week. We jump right into the credits. Mm-hmm. So we start at a stream 10 miles out of Boston. Joel looks upset, as you would imagine. He's just lost test. He's stacking rocks sort of in a daze, almost like a Zen type thing. You stack the rocks, you rake the sand. That's Zen, Spencer. What you know well, about that? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was an interesting mix of both Zen and also maybe even a memorial that he just almost feels the need that some something needs to be left behind to remember. I assume that he was almost leaving like a bit of a carn for a test there. Maybe. He walks by Ellie, who has her back up against a tree. She asks him if he wants his jacket back. He just sort of scoffs at her. She looks around. He's looking for some food in his bag, and he throws her the said food. So I guess she's run out of her chicken parm sandwiches. She's finally said she's <sighs> never been in the woods. More bugs than I thought. Amen to that. And I would imagine as someone who lives in Florida, you can say amen to that heartily. Uh, I don't think there's honestly woods out there. I think it's just bugs. That, 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 that is the state of the wilderness in Florida. Swamp and bugs. I'll tell you this about nature. Nature seems to be doing just fine in this world. Trees are doing... The, here's the thing. Nature's doing the, better without us. The ints are doing well. Um, <laughs> Radagast is doing fine. Nature is doing just fine out there. It's the humans that have the problem in this world. Uh, uh, she finally says, I've been thinking about... He says, I don't want your sorries. And she cuts him off and says, I wasn't going to say I'm sorry, which, by the way, she shouldn't. And she says, I was going to say I've been thinking about what happened. Nobody made you and Tess take me. Nobody made you go along with this plan. You needed a truck battery or whatever, and you made a choice. So don't blame me for something that isn't my fault. Shout out Ellie. Call it out the tension. Shout out Ellie. I like her so much. And, and, and the reaction from Joel was perfect because he just looks at her and does the, yeah, like a, I like this sort of, I, I'm not an emotive guy, but you're right. I'll give you the, I'll give you the affirmative head nod here. Right. It's, it's, it's just addressing the fact that he's, Sad, bitter, whatever emotion you want to describe for what for, for the loss of Tess from Joel's life right now. And he's creating an atmosphere that appears to be taking that on Ellie. Unfairly. She's addressing it head on, and Joel seems to respond well to that. He, 
I think he's used to people kind of addressing him directly and getting him on a different path. We saw that a lot with his relationship with Tess, it seemed. Yeah, and I think that's why Ellie and Tess connected so well, because they're very much talk you know talk about Chekhov's gun if the Chekhov's gun's on the table they're going to say hey why is that gun on the table that type of thing that's that's what she is naturally so i think it actually it just sets up well for them like their their natural personalities uh, one one thing to note here this entire show as best as i can tell was filmed in canada there are, they do a typically good job of masking it to look like other places this mostly just looks like wilderness canada perhaps wilderness massachusetts has come to look like this now but this looks a lot like i've got lost hiking in the woods in canada so we've got a buddy who lives outside of Boston, and we think yes. he has some survivalist tendencies. Um, and he also has a giant beard, and as you said, survivalist he, tendencies. He very much could have. He, he's the type that could get out of the the sort of like Auschwitz train car to the QC. He could get out of that and build his own mm. little. Fence. He could have done all of this that Bill did. Um, he has told me many times that it's shocking how quickly outside of Boston it becomes very rural. Like how, how primeval? Well, how how quickly you just start seeing woods and 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 nature, right? So I think mm-hmm. I think maybe it's a little bit. I mean, obviously there's been it's grown right since humans sure, have stopped like destroying the man. planet um, in this in these twenty years. But also I think that there's some of that that exists in that area. So as they're sure. walking, uh, oh, there's this cool little moment where she says, "How much longer?" He says, five hour hike," and she says, "We can manage that." You know what that felt like, Spencer? Mm. That felt like the glass of orange juice in the morning. That felt like Joel. Get your vitamin C. The we can manage that felt like her building Joel up a little bit. Yeah, that very much felt like you know that, that's a perfect way of describing that. She was bol- she was reestablishing a team and getting them motivated again, and that's a necessary thing that Joel seems to really need right now. She has more levels to her ability to be emotionally available than I thought. Like she she is I here's what I'm predicting is that she seemed like the only thing you could rely on her for is to just be needy and to be aggressive mm-hmm. and to be Starkey. someone to be managed. But instead, I think she's slipping almost into Joel's daughter's role in a weird way. Like, I mean, she's obviously a very different person, but like she has the ability in certain situations to be emotionally available for Joel in a way that I didn't expect. So I think there's going to, this, this relationship's. I mean, obviously it is, but this relationship's going to be a lot deeper than I would have thought just watching episode one. And I think we're going to see. I think we see a lot of signs of it, even with the limited amount of time we spend with the two characters this episode. We see, you noted in our pre-talk briefly, we see some protectiveness from Joel directed towards Ellie that we hadn't seen previously. And I'll be curious as to your thoughts as to why we're starting to see that. As they are walking, she asks him if he goes this way a lot. He says, "Well, no, not a lot." She asks him about infected. He says, "Well, we're actually not looking for infected. We're looking for people here, like you know, raiders, mm. other humans." And she says, are Bill and Frank nice? And he says, Frank is. This is the first, for non-video game people, this is the first reference to the, these two characters, Bill and Frank. I didn't know who these were during this conversation. She, we got off mentions of them associated with the radio before, but they were very much off mentions. She, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember that. See, so uh, She asked him about the scar on his head, teases that it might be something lame, like he fell downstairs or something. He cuts her off and says, no, someone shot at me but missed. And she's like, did you... Did you shoot back? And he said, yeah. And she's like, did you hit him? And he said, no, I missed. Love that he admits that he missed. I love Joel. I love this guy. He's like, yeah, I missed him too. He said, it happens more often than you think, which Mm -hmm. we see later in the episode. And um, she says, is that just something that happens? Or is that because you suck at shooting? He says, it's just something that happens. (laughs) It's one of those things of like, you know, professional gunman, experienced gunman. 
miss a lot when the bullets are actually flying. It's part of, it, it is part of things. You know, the one shot, one kill as a Marine philosophy doesn't always play out that way in real life. Let me tell you something. As someone who, and I try not to do this, but I do have the tendency to want to move the pieces on the chessboard. I do have the sort of, I'm going to set everything up you to go pre- the way predict I Predict it out, yes. She's doing this a little bit on the gun comment. Because what she's, what she's getting at long term is, well, if you suck at shooting guns, I'm pretty good. I mean, you could give me a gun. I mean, because everything is, she wants a gun. She's mm-hmm. Everything's going back to this do, at this point. Do you assume that she's ever fired a gun before? I'm curious. Yes. You, you, you believe that she she has gun experience. That's why she wants one. Yeah, I do. Part well, of I why think she, she wants Well, one. I think she wants a gun because every kid probably wants a gun in this society because gun equals live another day. But True. I think that she, yeah, her personality and the people she probably ran with, because it didn't seem like she had strong paternal figures in her life before mm-hmm. uh, she was taken by Marlene. I think that she probably has found somebody to give her a gun at some point. What do you think? I, I, I have more information than you, so I'm just going to go with your theory for right now. Okay. All right. You know, being as it's just the two of us, I was thinking I should probably know. So yeah, that's right on the gun. Getting back to the gun. So they show up to Cumberland Farms. It looks like a little, maybe grocery store or something out in... Mid- middle of nowhere, rural Boston. Rural Massachusetts. Suburbia, a little rural Boston. He tells her to hang back a bit while he looks for stuff he stashed. She asks him why he stashed it there. You ask a lot of goddamn questions. Ellie says, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Keep doing so. Get used to it. As they walk into the abandoned store... So you can answer me or what? Joel says, we hide supplies on routes in case we find ourselves short on gear, which I currently am, because Ellie then freaks out and runs over to an old Mortal Kombat arcade game. Spencer, did you recognize the version of this Mortal Kombat arcade game? This is actually a real one. I did not actually recognize it offhand. I recognized Mortal Kombat, recognized Melina, have played it in arcades many times, did not recognize the cabinet. This is Mortal Kombat 2. This is the one that really launched it into stardom. Uh, it looks like a nice. recre- it looks like a recreation. It doesn't look like one from the 80s. It looks like one maybe that was made in the early 2000s. But yes, Mortal Kombat 2. My next question for you, Spencer's favorite Mortal Kombat character, Go. Uh, Jade, which I believe actually originated Mortal Kombat 2. Yeah, mine's Reptile all the way. Good call. Uh, she asked about the character Meline. Uh, she talks about the character Meline, who talk, takes off her mask, she has monster teeth, and then she swallows you whole and barfs you up. Okay, well, that's pretty true. That, on the that, nose for the current that, situation they're dealing with. It, 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 it is all the Mortal Kombat kill move, so, you know, good to remember it. Yeah, that's, uh, by the way, cheat code for that up, up, down, down, XX, YY, YY, XX, uh, start, up, down, up, down, start, start. Up, down, up, down, X, Y. You know, those codes were unbelievably obnoxious trying to figure the, out the finishing uh, codes. Th- those codes were try it, fail, and then just kind of swoosh my face against the board and hope something happens. He looks around and she says, you forgot where you put your stuff. Joe says, no, I'm just zeroing in on it. I haven't lost it, Spencer. I'm zeroing in on it, you see. I'm not lost. I'm just no, finding, no, no. I'm just finding do- the way. Lee, I don't need a map. I know where we are. It's okay. We're going to Charleston. We're going to be there for the bachelor party. I don't need your advice on this. <laughs> she sort of... You realize we're, go, we're not even going to Charleston. She sort of gives a... This is, this is what Talk it is. Talk about the last time we went to this Charleston. Is, this is what it is with Spencer. It's like, yeah, I'm constantly having to... Like, you know what? He, he forces me to be a secretary. It's, it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> she sort of gives a knowing eye roll. It says, you know what? You are your Joel. Joel, you know, Joel, Joel requires other people to be a secretary too. You know, um, I think that's part of his charm. I get along great with others. I am not Joel. You don't think Joel gets along well with others? That's a serious question. 
I th- well, I think he has a reputation with others. I think he bonds very carefully with certain individuals, and I think from what we've seen, he is at best cold with people that are outside those he has deemed his circle. But you know what I've noticed about him, though, is you're right. He is that way. But everybody wants to like him. Everybody wants to be friends with Joel. Like the, the neighbors. Mm-hmm. The, they Even though he was being kind of brusque and a dick with them, they still wanted to be engaged with him. They still liked him. You know, Bill and Frank, I think both of them, even though Bill has a hard time showing it, both of them were <laughs> charmed by Joel. I think Joel, even though he is sort of a tough person, I think there's this charm about him where people are attracted to him. I think that's going to, I, I spend time on this because I think that's going to be a real big thing going forward. His magneticism, his charisma, because he's going to eventually need people to help him with Ellie, well, I think. I think he's also one of those people that does an excellent job. People can see his value quickly. They can see that he's a useful person to know, that he's a skilled person to know. And that also has an effect of, gravita- of having people gravitate towards him. Yeah. So she sort of gives a knowing eye roll and she says she can take a look around to see if there's anything good. He says it's all picked over. She says, maybe, maybe not. I'll be the judge of that. I'll be the judge if it's picked over or not. Is there anything bad in there? Just you. Getting funny. Yeah, we're going to get that a lot. Is there anything bad in there? Just you. Mm-hmm. Is that something he said in the video games? Because it seems like they're calling that back a lot. Yes. Okay. She then goes into the side room. She finds a door to a basement. Here's the thing. In this zombie world, Spencer, when the cordyceps are everywhere, we've lost mm-hmm. set. We, me and you have approximated 7 billion people are lost. Mm-hmm. I will give this guidance, Uncle Lee, out there to the kids. Do not go into basements. Just period. Just don't. Uh, well, bear in mind, she's already been bitten twice. She has a track worker, track record of going into the places where she gets at risk of getting bit. This is in character. That's a great point. She opens the door and drops in. She sees a bar of tampons on the shelf and takes a shout out to her. Not enough people talking about the lack of tampons in the post-apocalyptic world. I would imagine that becomes very important very quickly. It, it was a great call. That you know, Feminine hygiene products kind of get left to the wayside in terms of imagining what things you'd be looting for in the apocalypse. I have to assume that tampons have an expiration date. No, I, I don't can't. Think so. But what is what would expire? I think anything expires, other than maybe honey, by certain definitions. I, I'm going to Google this. I'm curious what the on-box expiration date of tampons. I just is. don't know what would expire in them. I mean, they're, they're they're it's a cloth item. But I mean, either way, they do two things in this episode. They sh- shout out that tampons are important. Feminine hygiene products are important in this society. Also, toilet paper. They're they're, they're raiding the toilet paper as they leave Bill's house at the end. That was also important. I think. Uh, they have a shelf life of five years, assuming they're perfectly sealed against moisture. Outside moisture is the problem. I can. Now that makes sense to me. Yes, I get that. She hears something and it's an infected, but it's under a ton of rocks. It can't move. This, I would think, is a scientist's dream because you have a live one that's trapped that can't get to you that you can kind of futz with and examine. I mean, I would think that's that's pretty valuable, probably. Is it fair to say that Ellie's experiments a little bit herself before going for the coup de grace? She does indeed. She cuts it open. And this is exactly kind of what you were mentioning in the last podcast, Spencer, that it looks like when you are infected for any length of time, basically you're just, you're just jam full of these cordyceps. To the rafters. Yes. It's just, you're, yeah, you're a, you're a pinata, as I think is what you called it last time. Mm-hmm. Very, very, your, your purpose is to spread the spore everywhere and you yourself are filled to the brim. I see nothing but spores inside. At the same time, Joel looks like he found a stash after she sees what's inside of our cordyceps guy, she flashes anger and stabs at the head. Now, she previously had asked Joel about killing it, if you feel bad, if you kill one, etc. I think this might be her first infected kill, Spencer. Very possible. I mean, it, it, certain, I'm curious as well, as you noted, 
the expression on her face, the motivation scene for his action is an element of rage, an element of anger. What do you think is driving that? Uh, because I think that her, the, her line of questioning to Joel made it seem like to me that she's in your boat, which is she's not completely sure that the infected are dead, that they're not they're not some part of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think in order to kill it, she had to get mad at it, it you know, because she's still kind of like she wouldn't have been asking the questions of Joel. She was asking if she viewed infected people as tree bark, mm-hmm. you know, she was asking, do you feel guilty about killing one? So I think that she had to work herself up to do this. A proper bulking. Of it. I got you. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, Joel calls for her. She comes out and holds up the tampons. picked over my ass. I found something. She puts him <laughs> away. Joel puts his stuff away. And then he puts the, Gun, the larger long gun that he's carrying. I don't know, AR something. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a gun person. That's going to hurt me in the post-apocalyptic world. Not being a gun person. <laughs> and saying that there isn't much ammo in it, he's got to stash it because it's mostly useless. Ellie says, "Well, if you're just going to leave it, Joel flashes annoyance. No, <laughs> this is now twice in the first seven minutes of the episode. He's told her no guns. I, I and I don't think we're done yet. And off they go now. But walking now back." you know, outside walking around in nature. They come upon a plane wreck and she's amazed. She asks him if he ever got to ride in one of those. Joel says, yeah, a few times. She says, so lucky. Joel says, didn't feel lucky at the time. He gets shoved in the middle seat, pay 12 bucks for a sandwich. Ellie says, dude, you got to go up into the sky. I, I love, I love that exchange between the two of them. Cause it does just kind of frame that there is so much that we do that is straight up science fiction in our day to day lives. We travel through a tube. It's going faster than you know, flying through the air by means of however the hell lift works, sending us cross country in various directions. And we treat it like a chore. This, that is the nature of modern life that such things that would be wondrous to someone that did never have an opportunity to do them before are to us tedious. Yeah, Louis C.K. did this sketch. It's a, a sketch he had called Everything's Awesome and No One Cares. And he literally talks I'm about seen that one. He talks about being um, upset with airplane Wi Fi. And then he sort of like does the objective view of himself and he goes, you're sitting in a chair in the sky and you're <laughs> mad that your computer isn't working. Like what is wrong with you? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. It's sort of amazing. Some of the stuff we do like right now, I'm, I'm looking mm-hmm. at, I'm, I'm watching you cross crystal, country, crystal clear picture um, on a little teeny flat computer. Um, and we're doing a podcast that we're going to record and pump out to the entire world here in about three hours. That's pretty like, fucking like- amazing stuff, dude. Like six of those things, if you even described them out loud, would have gotten us burned as a witch back in the day. Yeah, it's a pretty cool thing. And I, and I think that they are, they're able to comment on that through the eyes of Ellie, who doesn't have all this stuff. Very true. Yeah. So um, off they go. Then Ellie opens up a conversation, which we're all very interested in. She asks, so everything came down crashing in one day. How the hell does that happen? Joel says, pretty much. Fair question. She's Fair rightfully, question. She's rightfully confused by this. And then Joel proceeds to lay out the theory that I had. That it wasn't monkeys. Episode. Exactly. Well, everybody knows my, my love of primates and my desire to, to rescue primates who were abused in the pet or the medicine uh, trade. I was really upset with uh, our girl, Ellie, for suggesting that monkeys might have done this. And I'm glad that Joel shut it down. Why, monkeys get unfairly blamed for every fucking pandemic ever. Uh, were you able to make it more than 10 minutes into 28 days later? Uh, yeah. And le- no. And, le- and let's stop calling them monkeys. Monkeys are, a very, you're talking about primates. Monkeys are a very particular kind of primate. 
So Jill says it wasn't a monkey. She's never met one. Let her have her ignorance. I know. Fedra school. They don't teach you that stuff there. And they also don't teach you how shitty, how their shitty government failed to prevent a pandemic, apparently. So she doesn't know how this all happened. So Joel commences to say the theory that I would imagine most people have. This seems Mm -hmm. like he probably, this has been cobbled together by people. No help of Fedra, I'm sure. And he says this. Best guest. Best guess, cordyceps mutated and some of it got into the food supply. Ding, ding, ding. I guess that last episode probably you did, a, which, which I shouldn't deserve a lot of credit for. They had given me 15 breadcrumbs, haha, uh, before then. And uh, <laughs> I, I finally picked it up. He said probably a basic ingredient like flour or sugar. We're thinking flour. There were certainly brands of food that were sold everywhere, all across the country, all across the world. Bread, cereal, pancake mix. I like the delay there. Yeah. This is the last one a bit despondent. You eat enough of it, you'll get infected. So the tainted food all hit the stores around the same time. Thursday, people bought it, ate some food. Thursday or Friday morning, day goes on. They start to get sick. Afternoon, everything gets worse. They start biting Friday night. By Monday, everything was gone. This is a really interesting spin on the pandemic, like the Station Eleven type story, or the zombie type mm-hmm. story, the 28 Days Later story. It's sort of a mashup of the two. I think it's really cool. I like the idea of the fungus, the cordyceps, et cetera. The thing that doesn't make sense is that the food... That if there was a bad batch of the flour, cordyceps got into the flour, that it would hit the stores at the same time everywhere all over the globe. That's not how our supply chain works at it, all. Very, that, particularly, that's, that's the only hole I can poke in. It, it, it is a hole. Because, you know, if we're shipping from Jakarta, it's not going to reach every single destination of its potential product all around the world on the same Friday, September 26, 2003, or even a couple days. Here. I also work now, at a grocery maybe, store, and I can tell you that sometimes you you have ordered flour. And you didn't sell the amount of flour that you anticipated when you ordered it. And so your order for that week sits for a week or two until the flour goes off the shelf. So it's not even going to, even if it go, gets to the store physically, it's not going to hit the shelf at the same time, depending on previous demand at that store. So there's a lot of complications there, but look, whatever, let's gloss over it. There are. Now, notably on our first episode, they talked about that there was increasing levels of violence happening around the world with that explanation. So it seems like it was already starting to grow and build in other it places. It certainly started in Jakarta first and got reported in Jakarta first, right? Right. And it was affecting other cities and probably other countries around the world in a way that just wasn't as being active news in Austin. It hit Austin like a truck on Friday night, September 26th. That, that data point we have. And also, I, I, I double checked. The flashback we got in Jakarta, uh, in episode two, was on the 23rd, so three days before then. Three days. Okay. Well, that's about right, probably. But, I mean, it's just, you know, you you release a shipment of flour to America. The dates that people are going to actually eat that are spread over about a six-month period. And that's okay. It's an explanation. It provides a worldwide connection that a lot of zombie apocalypse don't. There's all kinds of problems with it. The the problem that it it would almost certainly have been killed or removed whenever you cooked. Nobody's eating raw flour. That it almost certainly would have been caught by anti, anti-fungal testing that, of course, they do with flower products around the world. We're just going to ignore those for this explanation. Or if, you know, these people got sick at the flower facility in Jakarta, one mm. of the first things they would do is shut down anything, in any supply sure. from that. They, could, they would claw back all distribution from that facility immediately. And that would probably, if they did, if they did that. And they, you know, put the call in to this, you know, stores and said, you know, pull, pull all this from the shelf, et cetera, et cetera. I would think that then the number of people who would actually eat this would be small enough. They might have actually been able to contain it. I, it, it, I make a point of all this by, because it's real important that 
a lot of people like this flower and that it, that the, yes. the shot the foot the the golf cart the the golf tournament shotgun start happening because otherwise you could have contained it like yes. you know if it was what three thousand people say instead one of thing, 30 million one of the things that makes this even harder to contain too is that it, it wouldn't they wouldn't know immediately that the food supply food supply had been affected by this they wouldn't even know what was causing this at first you have to imagine that the government supplies they were putting in these QZs probably contained a lot of contaminated products, meaning that some of these QZs probably fell almost the moment they started from more people getting infected just from the government supplies they brought in. Baltimore. Yeah, I have a hard time believing that they that we would not have been able to figure out that it was coming from the flower. Do you think, you think we would have caught that fairly quickly? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, okay. I think so pretty quickly. Yeah, I don't I don't think this could really happen, but... Well, good! I'm glad! Shocker. Um, so... Uh, she, as they get closer, first off, she gives him a serious thank you after that explanation. Again, yeah, I'm going to put him at a four now, Spencer. Four. That, I was hoping you'd go back to our scoring. Solid think, four. We're almost at midpoint. I do think he cares about Ellie at this point, but it's not not he doesn't consider her family, but he does he does care about her. She is not just a shipment, right? Uh, I, I think we may even hit a five here in a second. Joel then tries to get her to cross into the woods because he doesn't want her to see what's up ahead. As soon as he says that, she just races up to it. And what they see is basically a field of bones. Um, Mass grave. Which, of course, would have been, you wouldn't see the bones at this point. But the, I think what they, they they just want you to know that Ellie's able to determine that this this is a mass human grave in some way. Yes. Right? Yeah, but by this point, animals would have picked him over, much less even the elements. But we, we, need, a, we need a visual connection to then lead to a story. Yeah. Joel explains that about a week after Outbreak Day, I love that it gets a title. That's nice, nice little holiday. We're going to call this a floating holiday in our holiday schedule plans here at Mangum Talks. You can take it. Or Outbreak not take Day. It. Outbreak Day. Yeah, it's a floating <laughs> holiday. You can take it or not it, take it. It's up to you. This is the early Labor Day. Soldiers came by, went through the countryside, evacuating small towns. Told you you were going to a QC, and you were going to a QC if there was room. If there wasn't, Spencer, this sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Uh, it does, yeah, that uh, apparently if they don't have room, they need to eliminate the potential infected population by any means necessary. She's like, why kill them? Why not leave them be? Joel says dead people can't get infected. That is cold calculus right there. That tells me that they had reached a level of cluelessness and desperation. That is, mm -hmm. is whatever the scale is, it's at the end of it. Right, yeah. and you just start you just start killing people because you think if I don't kill them, they'll end up being infected and they'll attack me. Like that is that, desperation at the max. That that tells me that as of that day, they still didn't know exactly what was causing this, much less their ability to control it. We see, a, yep, yeah, we see a scrap of clothing. They do a flashback to September twentieth, two thousand three, and it's a dress of a woman who has a baby. Oh, oh boy! And the soldiers are loading them onto transport, spray painting the doors again. All looks very familiar. Um. And what I'm referencing there is, is the Holocaust. That's what I'm referencing, if you don't know. I figured you if were. people don't know, uh, because that's kind of what they did. They went and just collected uh, Jewish people. They put them in these big military facilities. They boarded up their their homes. They spray painted them. And they took them to a detention camp if there was room. If there wasn't, they just killed them. It's the same exact mm -hmm. thing. Uh, as this was happening, we see a guy watching. And then, by the way, they even call the government Nazis later. So, like, there's they, they even do it in world. They make that connection. Well, they were Nazis then, but not before. As all this is happening, we see a guy watching security monitors in a dark room. He hears something. He grabs a gun. He sits there completely quiet. 
Clearly, somebody's walking through the floors above. Through subtitles, we get to hear what the soldiers are saying. Here's what they say. No, sir. We're in the basement now. <laughs> There's no one here. The guy says to himself, not today, you new world order jackboot fucks. And I recognize that voice. That is our very own, Pawnee's own, Ron Swanson. <laughs> also known as Nick Overman, who is, I had not seen him in this kind of role before, and I was thoroughly impressed. He's the perfect person for this role. Yes. Perfect. Uh, people take off. We see a sign that says it's a mandatory evacuation zone. So no one is supposed to be left there. It's closed off. It's done. That's it. We're done with that town. And the lights go out in this room. The guy is in. We see guns and ammo. Got, got lights go on in the room. The guy's in. We see a guns and ammo magazine, walls of guns, and sulfuric acid. He goes upstairs through a trap door that looks like a normal chest of drawers. That was pretty slick. The chest of drawer trap door. I want door. one of those. I that want one of those. really cool. And he walks around with a gun and a gas mask. Maybe a callback to the game a little bit. The gas mask on? Definitely, yes. He goes outside. He's looking around with a gun. He's got a big, nice house. There's no one there. No one left. He takes the mask off and he smiles. Why? Because he is one of these. He's a survivalist. He's a he's a prepper. He's one of these people that I kind of referenced in the last episode where I said these people might be doing well. Well, we see we see one of them. He is doing well. And this is what he's been planning for. This is his Disney World. This is his playground. This is what all of this work, all this money, all this effort to create everything that we see all, all go into action here is for this moment. That's why you get the smile. Yeah, Nick Offerman himself is 52. I'm betting the character's probably in that range, maybe late 40s or something, somewhere around there. He's been investing 30, 20, 30 years of his life, whatever else, for exactly this day. This is the culmination of so much preparation, so much longing, so much desire for the rest of the world to burn so he can finally run his own little part of it. And, you know, he, he talks a little bit toward the end of the episode about how he, or I think he does it in his letter, about how he hated the world. He was glad people died. And, you know, you can build out the story. Introvert, a prepper. People think he's weird. He's also closeted homosexual. There's a lot of things there that make him antisocial, that make him not connecting with the outside world. And so he's perfectly fine. There's nobody. Let's fine. Get to live alone. It's this is your dream. All Everyone leaves. It's just you. You just, everybody stops bothering you. I would like it for a period. I think I would eventually get lonely. Now, we referenced our friend Levi. Is this Le is this Levi's dream scenario? Yeah, it's your yeah. You said you'd like it for a period. I'd say you'd like it for about two years. Two years be good. Yeah, Levi'd like it for about thirty five. <laughs> He'd like it beyond our present point in the story. He takes the truck to a neighbor's house, gets a boat. The boat really is just a trailer. He's just using the boat for a trailer. Yes, boat boat is to carry other things. He breaks into a gas station to turn the pumps on, and he fills up huge tubs with gas. This is a good point. Premium. This is a good point because the gas. Um, you know, people, people are evacuated in a, in just a period of days, a day or two, these gas stations are still going to have some gas in the, in the, you know, in the tanks below ground. So he's just siphoning off everything he can find. Right. I mean, if the, if the government's evacuation was actually carefully enforced, he's got effectively the supplies of, you know, let's say this is a town. I don't have, I don't remember the exact name of the town he's in, but let's say this is like a small town of like 5,000 people. He's got 5,000 people worth of supplies that he can individually draw from now. He takes the truck to a neighbor's house, gets a boat. He breaks into a gas station to turn the pumps on. I mentioned that. He goes to Home yeah. Depot. He's loading up. Then he busts into a large natural gas facility. So this is where I think he really gets his energy that, that lasts him the 20 years. He's pumping direct from the facility. Kind of exactly. Thing, yeah. You have either a municipal or a commercial 
mass distribution center of natural gas and he's probably retrofitted his generator for natural gas mm-hmm. and he's using natural gas for his stoves his water heater all that stuff hey, look if if your town just shut down now spencer and you got you just for your personal use got all the natural gas that you're i mean it would last you a hundred years like yeah this is this is actually pretty realistic in my mind from what i know yeah he talks he talks later about <clears throat> the importance of resource conservation I don't know if he has to worry about that much. I think he's got more than a human life worth of stuff. Maybe gas. Maybe gas he's having to conserve, but not natural to gas. To at least I be careful. Uh, he turns his gas stove on to get his generator running again. I think it's probably running on natural gas. If not at this point, at some point. He then commences to making a fence. He starts making booby traps all around the perimeter. He starts growing food. I mean, this is a absolute prepper's dream. It's textbook. Like what, what they are all planning to do. In the event of this situation, it's, it's notable as well that a lot of, you know, self-declared survivalist or preppers, they buy some shit, but don't actually take, make the effort to learn how to actually, you know, gain the necessary skills to do the things you would need to do. Clearly, this guy has spent some time, effort and mental capacity learning what he would need to do and thinking about what those steps would be. Yep. Ellie and I both think he's a genius. <laughs> yes, indeed. He's got chickens. He's got a little slaughterhouse. He butchers an animal. He makes a little port sauce. This is a, that's he, a quick little pan port sauce for himself, and he sits down to a nice meal. Ron Swanson a, still likes his meat. That is an absolutely gorgeous little meal that he made there. That is five-star dining that he has made all himself, growing his own damn carrots in the apocalypse. Not your rabbit. But I not could, my, not your I'm rabbit, but I could, I'm glad. I, could, I could very much cook you this meal. Very much. This is a no. this is a simple braised rabbit with a port sauce. Can, can know, I ask for this without the zombie fungal apocalypse? Could like you know this be arranged on a Tuesday without the world ending? Low carb. It's going to be low carb. Okay. Um, a uh, we hear a buzz and it's an infected walking toward his perimeter. It eventually goes over a tripwire and is shot. He watches it. He's entertained. He says it doesn't get old. He clearly doesn't think of these things as people. His conscience isn't hurt by killing one. Not in the yeah. least. It doesn't seem. No, I mean at this point we're at like the how how long has it been at, the, at this point? Have you done any time jump at all? No, this is still like just it, a couple it, weeks. Still we, weeks or months. Sure. Yeah. And that's why he's still getting astray infected right i think years down the road he's not going to be getting these straight infected they've clustered more around the cities to the degree they're still out there exactly then we see four years later so we get our first time jump him coming into the gate which is remote control he's still using the boat to haul things around things he's getting i suppose now from scavenging either from still that home depot i mean if you have an entire home depot for your own personal use it's going to last you for at least four years for Mm -hmm. sure but he's probably he's got also can scavenge everybody's homes any other stores in the area surrounding towns it's an awful lot of supplies and materials he has at his disposal he goes downstairs doing some work he hears a buzz and something has hit one of his trap doors he goes out there we hear i'm not infected Uh uh-oh that's kind of shocks bill a person now here's a question at this point i mean what what are your thoughts on how much she's interacted with real life non-infected people over the preceding four years none zero I, I'm iffy because I, I my my default is like you to none, but I am with Frank asking how the how hell did the he thing? get that scanner? Yeah, you, you either traded or murdered for it because it's the only options there, yeah, or that's happened true. to find it. Yeah, or he could have happened to find it. That's true. Uh, he could have ventured out and you know maybe even talked to Fedra, although that doesn't really sound like in his personality. No. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe he is doing a little bit of bartering. Um, Casas are not infected. There's a bill 
ask him if he's armed and he there's a pause the guy says no he's like hey why'd you take so long to answer uh one little fun little point this this episode has some great music throughout all of it i do love that the music does every now and then shift between the decades that we've seen before based on the mood of the particular scene but i think the last song that we got was white room by cream which is decidedly 60s yeah so things are good everything's yeah. going fine in a white room um the guy tells him he's just trying to get to boston Mm-hmm. Bill says alone. The guy says, well, we started with 10, but yeah, I'm alone. From where? Baltimore QZ. It's gone. Mm-hmm. You know what happened? What happened? Pancake breakfast. Damn pancake breakfast. You know, they stocked up on pancakes. Just proper Klondike pancakes just fell in the pantries, and it was just a lethal bomb waiting to happen. I mean, you're right. If they haven't figured out that it's in the flour supply, there's still any of that flour that's left. They're taking it from the stores. Mm-hmm. They're taking it to the QZ and it's continuing to infect people. So it's a it's a clusterfuck if they haven't figured that out. Well, one of many possible reasons that QZs are still falling. Bill asks him if he's hurt, presumably from the fall into the bit the pit. The guy says just to Bruce. Bill gets him a ladder. My question for you. Offerman acts this very subtly. I felt like on the second watch, maybe I'm making this up. I am a romantic. I mm. felt like he was attracted to the guy right away. The way he was like looking at him and being a little like weird and shy and odd. I don't know if I'm making that up or not. Yeah, I very much agree that there was an element of shyness. There was an element of standoffishness. There was an element of curiosity all mixed in there to the degree that was just my first watch. I saw that. I was just thinking, oh, he's not sure how to interact with another person. It's been a long time. He was probably very, you know, introvert as is. In retrospect, though. Several of the scenes, particularly after this scene, element of, like, you know, attraction, not certain what to do with it, not certain how to interact in that particular perspective, seems really apparent, particularly once a guy gets back to the house. Yeah, exactly. It, it feels like we get early indications of his attract, of being attracted to him, although, you know, obviously scared of any, any mm-hmm. stranger. I mean, he's, he is... Trust is not there. He has... At minimum, a healthy fear of strangers. I think at maximum, he is, he's a justified bit fear. Yeah. So he tests the guy, and the guy asks him, "How the hell did you get the tester?" We we don't we still don't know that answer. We don't okay, ever don't speculate. That um, but he does test green, meaning the guy's in the clear. We know that from previous episodes. Bill tells him, "Boston's that way. You can make it by nightfall." So that tells me Bill is really in the Boston suburbs because you can get to Boston on a one day hike. One day hike, let's say 15 miles, maybe. Max, yeah. Um, so he's not that far yeah. out of Boston. And okay. it would make sense. I mean, you know, he clearly had a lot of money um, to be able to, to have the house that he had, the resources that he had, all that doomsday prepping stuff that he did. Um, I'm going to guess he worked in Boston, made the, made the big money, and then that money stretched in the suburbs. That's my guess. I'm curious as well. It's fun for just pondering this out. He specifically mentions that the piano was his mother's. Was there any possibility that he actually that, that was his mom's house before his too? Very well, yeah, could could yeah, he could have inherited some of this, but he had to have cash sure. to do a lot of the stuff. For all of his did. guns alone, yeah, or, or just just build that basement. Yeah, like, you're sitting on a couch right now. You want to you yes. want to make that couch a trapdoor to a fucking fallout shelter basement? You're in for a hundred grand to build to dig that thing out <laughs> and to build it. And you have to have cash to do this. Like yes. he, he had some money. He had he, resources. The guy tells Bill he's hungry, hasn't eaten in two days, and he says this thing, which I mean, it is it is charming. He says, "Doesn't sound that long when you say that loud, does it?" Right hmm. away, Frank is a charming guy. Like, uh, there's never a point he isn't. He is like, inherent. His main interaction with other people is just to immediately make them feel comfortable around him. Like, I don't identify as homosexual. I have a wife. 
But mm-hmm. I would be, I'd be like, oh, I like this guy. He's pretty cool. Like, I, <laughs> I, I immediately, I would. You, you don't have to bang him. You'd still invite him back for dinner. Yeah, he would. He'd, he'd be getting braised rabbit for me. That's for sure. Bill cuts him off. Says, "I'm letting you go. So go." Guy says, "Oh, my, my name is Frank." <laughs> Bill says, "Oh yeah. Well, here's the thing, Frank. I feed you, then every bum you talk about is going to show up here looking for a free lunch." This is not an Arby's. He, he felt really cool saying that. Well, and Frank well, just undercut the hell out of him and said, well, Arby's didn't have free lunch. It was a restaurant. <laughs> I love these two already. Yeah, I love that Frank wonderful. is at gunpoint. There's a guy pointing a gun in his face, and he still feels the need to quip that. Wonderful. It was hilarious. Uh, and Bill looks at him like, really, man? You're correcting That's me right now? That's what you're focusing on here? Uh, and Frank promises it, to not talk to any bums, hobos, or vagabonds. I have a question for you, Spencer. How how would one identify a bum from a non-bum in this society? Everyone is some category of bum. Everyone's uh, a bum. The, the bum is now the primary career choice. We've gone from agriculture to service industry to tech to now to, to truck drivers to bums. Frank says, you already know I'm bad at lying. Another charming line. Bill is starting to break here. He lets him inside. We see Bill walk into the room. He's got him in with clothes. The guy's in the shower. Bill walks in, drops the clothes off, stares at the door. A little bit too long, doesn't he, Spencer? Uh, there, there were several moments ah! where he was like, oh, when he was even first opening the door, you'd almost tell like he was kind of sort of like, is he in there? Does that mean I don't want to go in? What do I do? And he like goes in. It's almost like an element of disappointment. It's like, oh, he's still in the shower. Okay. Well, here's the clothes. But you want to bring the him shower. in there? No, 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 no. In the shower, huh? In the shower. You've taught me how to ship people in um in these shows, and I was shipping these two real hard right away. Really, really, really rooting for them. I mean, why the hell not? I mean, my God, the world has literally ended. You, know, mm-hmm. you only have each other. Come on, people. Um, so Bill tells him he's left some clothes there. Frank says, "I'm almost done." Actually, actually, can I have five more minutes? Bill's like, can- "Sure, sure," and he says, "It's amazing," and and I. I took the look from Bill there. Partially, he's intrigued by this guy. He's attracted to him. But I also think there was just a little hint, little hint, that he was saddened by the fact that a a simple shower was so amazing to this. The world had gotten that bad out there that a shower was amazing. This scene made me think. This this scene and when Ellie and Joe are talking later about the same thing, a hot shower would be one of the most longed-for pleasures of the world. It's like losing the ability to gain a hot shower or hot bath or anything else along those lines, or at least adding to what will be the burden of getting one. That would be a very personal loss from the apocalypse, among everything else. I'm not sure why the QCs still don't have running water, though. I don't. I don't understand that because, like, having a, getting a water plant up and running is not particularly difficult uh, technology for us humans. You don't need that many people, and you don't need that much space. Um, I, I, I have to believe. I have to believe it's a further indication that FEDRA is dedicating all available resources to its own purposes rather than necessarily maintaining and supporting the local populace. Which, this is the point I was making in the last podcast, and I am right there with Frank on this. You still have to live. Like, I, if you're if you're alive, you still have to live. And, like, mm-hmm. that's, that's, what, that's the blessing that Frank gave Bill, is he let him know, like, you've done all this. You're surviving. You're surviving. Now let's live our life, right? I think mm-hmm. that's a really great thing. So Bill brings him a plate of food and turns it just so. Just Go- so. Looks gorgeous. Can, and it's just, all- can I just take a second? Please, please, please. Can I shout out to Bill? I love yeah. a cook who takes plating food seriously in a home environment. 
it, it, it is so beautifully done. Like you said, I love that he turns the plate because it has to have the right angle. It has to have the right hit, the right light, that he prepared it from that perspective. This is a guy that thinks about these things. That tells us a lot about the character, that there's an assumption, an assumption that he even comments on this scene, that being a prepper, living on his own, whatever else, that he's not going to have an understanding or appreciation of those kind of culture. elements of culture, beauty, art. And it's these little things that give us the hint early on that he does, even if he doesn't have a full range of expressing it or knowing how to express it. There, I'll tell you this, the love like, is there. Yeah, like I, I do that at home all the time with my wife. Like I will, I'll plan a meal and I will cook it, and I will not. She, she would, she, she's a big fan of like grabbing a plate and running in the kitchen. Like blah, I'm blah, gonna, blah, blah, blah. I'm gonna make my, and I'm like, no, like I've, there's a particular way I want this to go on the plate. Let me mm. do it. She, it, you know allows me to do it and there's a little bit of eye rolling that goes on but i think it's very important when you're cooking a, at a meal to plate it particularly you don't have to just plate food if you're in a restaurant like mm -hmm. the point of plating is to facilitate the meal like in the way that you planned it right proper proportions making sure people combine certain elements that you want them to combine plating mm -hmm. is important anyway done with that rabbit hole rabbit i, I hole. agree and apparently <laughs> both do bill and fry yeah well said sir do, do we think he's actually uh Raising rabbits no. on site? We don't see them. We see chickens, but we're assuming he's, he's going and hunting these, I right? I think he's hunting, yeah. Okay. I, 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 that's my guess. Um, I, I mean, because he consistently eats meat for these 20 years, and he doesn't mm -hmm. seem to have like a Purdue farm there, right? He doesn't <laughs> have a meat facility, so I think he's hunting wild game. Mm. Um, so he, our guy Frank, loves it. Loves oh, it. Over the moon. Like, what the fuck level of love again? And this is when I knew they were on a date. When Bill goes, well, come on, everything's good when you're starving. Like, oh, like, don't, don't flatter me. And then Frank's like, Humble. no, it's wonderful. This is, everybody's done this on dates. Your, yeah. your partner cooks for you and you're like, this is wonderful. What, oh, whether it's just true or not. That. No, I'm not. It's really good. That whole back and forth. So they're already on a date, right? He serves Frank a Beaujolais in the middle of the day. Shout out he to the pairs. day He knows how to pair perfectly. Yeah. I, I you know, like I, I, if the zombie apocalypse happened. Um, I, I'm not a drinker. I'm not going to drink in a zombie apocalypse. But I could see how people would might pick up day drinking. I could just see a bit, that. Just a bit. Maybe, <laughs> maybe put a little bit of oxy in there while you're at it. You know, there get might, through the Spencer day. Spencer might have a midday Beaujolais. <laughs> <laughs> in Florida? You see, the, no, sir. I would not have found one, much less have been able to loot one. <laughs> Bill says, I know. It, so Frank says, a man who knows to pair a rabbit with a Beaujolais. Bill says, I know I don't seem the type. And Frank says, no. You do. And Bill liked that. He really liked that because he felt, I think he felt like Frank was seen in him more than the stereotypical prepper, guns and ammo, rebel flag, don't tread on me, the whole thing. He's more than that, right? Uh, and qu question as well for this scene, based on what we hear from Frank later, how well tuned is Frank's gaydar? How early is he picking up that there is a certain degree of tension in the room, as it were? I think he picked it up First off, he was looking around the house like, huh. It's like the one thing they do in these early scenes that I'm not as big a fan on is they, they do play a tiny bit on gay stereotypes. A little. <clears throat> with the nice house, with the fancy cooking, the fancy wine. Like they're they're playing on that a little bit because that's partially what Frank is picking up. He, they, doesn't, they think he, he doesn't think he's gay because he built a, you know, an electric fence with a remote control. He thinks he's right. gay because he knows how to serve a Beaujolais with a rabbit. 
think he also is, read, is reading the man well, too, in terms of his interactions, in terms of a certain degree of discomfort associated with it. I think he's correctly reading that, too. Because otherwise, other than, you know, a certain appreciation of the arts and quality food, neither of these guys are in any way stereotypically gay. They're almost no. ambiguously gay, unless you were focusing on the nature of the relationship, of course. Which is what I appreciate, <clears throat> because yeah. that super flamboyant gay character or whatever is simply that. It's a character. The gay people I know in my life are just people. They're just, yeah. They come any walk of life. They, they could be... They could be the Parks and Rec director in Pawnee. For sure. That could be. Very much so, yes. So he eats and he says, all right, I guess I'll be going. Bill doesn't seem super excited about his going, by the way. He, he mm. clams up at the going. And um, Frank notices the piano. He's been staring at it the whole time. Ask if it's an antique. Bill says it's a 1948. Frank then says they're worth a lot. I would like to say <clears throat> this is a weird conversation on multiple levels. One, he doesn't say the model. <clears throat> Excuse me. Simply having a piano from 1948 does not make it valuable. I just want to point that out. Sure. They say it was an antique. They didn't necessarily say it was a valuable antique. Right. But if you're going to say it's valuable, you'd have to say, oh, that's a blah, 1948. Yes. Right. Anyway, two, as Bill mentions, it's not worth anything right now because the world kind of has <laughs> collapsed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll say this, it, you know, marrying into a family that that knows real estate really well my my in-laws were were real estate people they they worked in that for 40 years mm -hmm. in 2023 no pandemic no 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 cordyceps pandemic anyway not many people want pianos it's very common no. for people wanting to leave pianos in homes as they sell them and people saying don't leave that shit here pianos are not that popular they're they're practically viewed at this point as a fixture and that they just come with the property they and as you said, it's often a fixture that people are paying to have removed as part of the price, part of the price of purchase. Particularly now in the apocalypse, where you know easily carryable, movable trade goods would be you know the valuables nowadays. A piano it has not, not only has no value; it has negative value. It is interfering with your process of looting the property. So then he starts looking through all of the different sheet music, and. Doesn't like a lot of it. Says, ah, oh, this is your mom's. This is your mom's. This one's yours. What does he pull out, Spencer? He pulls out Long, Long Time by Linda Ronstadt. Well, first off, he pulls out Linda Ronstadt's greatest hits. And then he actually yes, flips yes. to Long, Long Time. Linda Ronstadt, born July 15th, 1946. a retired American singer. Performed and recorded in country, rock, light opera, and the great American songbook. She earned 11 Grammy Awards. She's also received a star on the Hollywood Hawk Walk of Fame with Dolly Parton and Lou Harris. Mm -hmm. You can believe it, that. If you're anything like me, you have heard all sorts of her music, but for somehow never can place them as being a song that she wrote and performed. I'm very glad that this show reminded me that she existed because she has a great portfolio to browse through. And if you think she's some obscure person, think again. She's charted 38 U.S. Billboard Hot 100 singles. 21 of those singles reached the top 40. 10 reached the top 10. And one... Reach number one. You know what that one is? You're no uh, good. You're no good, baby. You're no good. Everybody knows that one. Great song. Great song. Love Linda Ronstead. We're going to get a lot of Linda Ronstead. That's why I felt like it was important to make sure people know who she is. <laughs> By the way, Linda Ron Ronstead's still alive. And there's a worry that she may not end up getting paid for all of the additional streams she's getting because of this show. You know, obviously, really? Spotify streams shot up. And I'm not sure she owns her catalog anymore. So she may not benefit no, from that'd this. That would be a um, he starts to play, and I, I'll tell you this, he doesn't sound like Rin, Linda Ronstead. Um, <laughs> he, he's not a professional, but he's trying. He's trying. Bill he clearly him. loves it. No, 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 not on this song. Basically, you're butchering it. Frank says, well, I'm not a professional. Bill says, well, neither am I, but, 
<laughs> I can do better than that. So Frank invites him to sit down and do the song. Frank says, I'll leave after this. Bill shows uh, him how it's done. One subtle little change I like. I said I wasn't going to mention changes in the video game, but I do like this one. In the video game, uh, Bill is into music too, but he's primarily into Hank Williams, an artist who famously died fairly young under somewhat tragic circumstances. I like that they shifted it to Linda Ronstadt, who has had a good long life and career and is still kicking. And I, thought, I feel like that, that sets a tonal shift for the episode too. I completely agree with that. And I also love that it seemed to me that Frank didn't quite know the melody to the song. He was just sort yeah. of guessing. Mm-hmm. And um, that really frustrated our guy Bill. Bill obviously <laughs> does know it, and is also a really good singer. Did not did not know that our guy Ron Swanson had the had the pipes on him, but he does. He uh, it, he was it, good. He, he did great for it. It feels like this song in particular. I think Frank read it correctly that this album is very meaningful to him, and this song in particular is very meaningful to him because you can just see the emotion that he's bearing with. He's not only playing this, but playing this to another person, which is a very revealing moment in a lot of ways. I feel. Yeah, it certainly is. So Bill's, um, Bill sings, long, long time, wonderful song, does a much, much better job of capturing the tempo, pace, mood. Frank gamely asks, so who's the girl, girl you're singing about? This is very much like, man, your girlfriend must be mad. You're here so late at night, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that the person goes, what girlfriend? And then you could say, ah, you know. They're playing, they're playing the game. Bill he's, says, and he's purposely playing it very gently so he reads Bill correctly. Here. Bill says, there is no girl. Frank puts a hand on his shoulder and says, I know. Frank then leans down and kisses him. I cheer on my couch. Two-handed fist pump for these two. <laughs> Bill looks terrified, but he does it. They kiss. Yes! Frank then asks Bill his name and Bill tells him, we found love. This is, I, I'm in for this story. Do I care about just shooting 100 zombies per episode? I do not. Do I care that these two people love each other and are going to actually have a life now? Did, did you recognize uh, Frank from season one, Light Lotus, by the, by the way? I did indeed. He was the uh, he's the hotel manager. He was. It, 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 those are two great actors, again, outside of the medium I've seen them before, but credit to them both in terms of the acting in this scene, particularly from Oferman as well, of where he's just such a wonderful way of really, really wanting this while also being kind of sort of terrified by it. Yeah, for sure. So... Tells him go take a sh- go take a shower, Bill. You can put that on a yeah. t-shirt. Go take a shower, Bill, because it's about probably to been go, a while. About to go down. Bill nods. Mm-hmm. Uh, upstairs, Frank has his clothes off in bed as he's waiting. Bill comes in. Ooh, um, the naked man. Frank takes the, the towel off. Ask him into the into the bed. And I think that the important part here is Frank reads that Bill has not ever had sex with a man before, so he's taking it pretty slow and he's talking him through it. But he does explain. Look, I'm. If I'm having sex with you, we're doing this. I'm going to stay a couple of days. And yeah. and Bill obviously is more than ha- – I mean, I think Bill would have asked him to stay anyway, but um, he's going to stay. And so ends a wonderful first day of a relationship. Smash cut to, oh, fuck you, as, Bill, as, as Frank storms out of the house. Yeah, but you know, it's a, oh, fuck you, but – but Bill is running behind him saying, hey, come back, come yes. back. Like, yes. it, this isn't it, it's a, a relationship squabble. Yeah, it really is. Four years later, right? Three. It doesn't, three. it really doesn't see, it's 2010. It really doesn't seem like these guys are going to, like, fight each other or, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, they're they're kind of arguing, but I think they take great pains in the dialogue to show us that there are, there are absolutely limits to their arguing. Yeah. And, it, and it's sort of healthy boundaries. 
Right. This is a fight. This is an argument. But there's no, no, they're not pondering the idea of leaving each other or anything along those lines. This is just a dispute between a loving couple. So they seem to be arguing about some work Frank wants to do around the neighborhood. Bill doesn't want him to use their resources for that work. Some memorable quotes from this exchange. One, our home isn't just our home. It's everything around us. Another mm-hmm. one. I live in this world. You live in a psycho bunker where 9-11 was an inside job and the government are all Nazis. The government, the government are, are all Nazis. Nazis. Well, yeah, now, but not then. Um, <laughs> so things de-escalate. He says he's making, he's asking for paint and gasoline. Stops Bill by saying, if you say resource management, so help me, I will run through one of your trip wires. Bill breathes, <laughs> says, okay, just tell me why. Paying attention to things. It's how we show love. Best line of the episode. Best line of the episode. Wonderful. What Frank's saying here is that we don't just live in this house. We live in this community that you boxed up, whatever else. And I want to spend the time to make it as beautiful as I want our home to be. It's what I want our relationship and the world around us to be. Good on you. This is the fighting of the different mindsets of Frank and Bill here. And I'm glad that Frank wins out because Bill, Bill wants it and needs it, even if it's against every impulse of his. I absolutely agree. Um, and that's wonderful. And then we get this final one. It's my street too. Just let me love it the way I want to. This is a recurring theme from Frank. Remember this line for later. <laughs> says he wants to fix up some of the shops too. The wine shop, the furniture shop, clothing boutique. So they're kind of creating their own little colonial Williamsburg here. Yeah. They've got their own little town. They're going to have a couple stores uh, that they fix up. Sometimes, even in the middle of the zombie apocalypse, it's nice, to go, it's nice to go out to eat. You know, enjoy, enjoy a bit of the scene. It's kind of a cool idea that they'd fix up the wine shop because, you know, if if Bill hadn't already taken every bit of supply out of there, which he might have not because he probably considers all this his home now, you could mm-hmm. literally like <clears throat> as part of your date, you know, Bill could start cooking and they could walk to the wine shop, pick out a glass, a bottle of wine and bring it back. Yeah. Like it, you know, ways, you know, it's almost like a work from work from home environment. You have to cook up ways to get out of your house. Basically, that's what they're doing. <laughs> That's exactly what Frank wants to do here. Let's live a life. Let's actually set a world that we can still travel around in and treat our little bit of paradise as it is. Yeah. He's telling him, we have to have a life here. Like, it's not Good. just enough to survive. If you're if you're just surviving, there's no use in surviving. Including friends. friends. That's what he comes up to. He says, we don't have friends, Frank. We will never have friends, Frank, because there are no friends to be had. I've actually been talking to a nice woman on the radio. You what? You what? Ah! Oh, man, you know out. what? Honestly, fair from Bill there. There's a lot of reasonable fears to have in this world and letting somebody out there know who you are and possibly where you are. Not necessarily the safest thing to do. Yeah, because part of Bill's success so far is that people don't know he's there. Because at a minimum, if Fedra knew he was there, early on, there could have been a problem. I think Joel addresses that later on by basically saying that, like, Fedra isn't that concerned with these people who are off the radar now. But initially, they would have been. And if certainly raiders are a concern, other humans. And, you know, it's one of the things I've tried to stay unsullied from the video game. I don't know the plot of the video game. I don't know any of that. One thing I do know about the video game that people have mentioned, they've tweeted about just in conversations have said that a, a lot of the tension in the video games is people to people, non-infected yeah. to non-infected. It's not necessarily just running from zombies the whole time. Yeah, the, the zombie apocalypse sets the setting and sets the ambiance. It doesn't set necessarily the primary tensions and the primary conflict. So you cut to an absolutely lovely dinner party out on the lawn. Beautiful day. Just the best. Yeah, it looks lovely. And this is, what, 
13 years before the present, roughly? Yeah. 10 years before the present, somewhere around there? So it's 2010, so 13 years before, yeah. Frank and Bill are hosting Joel and Tess. Bill will put his gun down. (laughs) It's funny. Quality work in the makeup, too, between the characters. They do such a wonderful job of putting... Visibly making them in different eras because, you know, what we're going to see Bill and Frank age, but we have seen Tess and Joel 13 years in the future, and they've made these characters look 13 years younger here. I think they're doing some deep fake stuff too to do, Possibly. The, to do the aging. Um, they've gotten really good at that really quick. I think that we're going to reach a point probably in about five or 10 years where we, we they can just take you and make you a kid. They can make you a, a uh, senior citizen. I mean, like age won't matter in telling mm-hmm. stories for characters. Um, so Bill will not put his gun down. Joel says, I'm the same way. Frank, you're a paranoid schizophrenic too. LOL. <laughs> but I do think Joel is immediately impressed with Bill and connects with him. And it seems to me that Joel connects with Bill before Bill connects with Joel. Especially Joel looks at Bill and is like, that guy's going to be, I, I like that guy. I, that yeah. guy's going to be my friend. And Bill's like, I will not be friends with anyone. And, you know, <laughs> of course he ends up being friends with him. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate read of where Bill, Joel immediately recognizes and respects that Joel, that uh, Bill is a guy worth knowing, that Bill is a guy that has built something, has accomplished oh, yeah. something, and has a proper understanding of what it takes to defend it. Yeah. Tess says, guns aside, it's great to have civilized me all in a wonderful place. It's been so long. I mean, I want to thank you. Even if we don't end up working together, I really needed this. Frank says, we are going to work together. So when he's, they're talking about working together, what they mean is, in essence, training the security, the resources, the know-how, the knowledge that Bill has for the resources <clears throat> that Joel and Tess can bring them from the QZ. There's also a kind of implication we got from the last episode of where the 70s, I think, was got new stuff is an indication that at some point around about here, Bill and Frank also become almost an element of a trading hub in terms of moving goods around and letting people know that they're there. We know eventually <clears throat> that Joel is probably supplying them with medication, right? Because we know he has yes. a line to medication and we know that from Bill, Atlanta, and, Bill and Frank, yep, from Atlanta, guns and bullets. <clears throat> so Frank indicates that they're going to work together. Frank tells Tess he wants to take her inside. Bill yells, not inside. And also, then they go inside. Also, Frank takes the wine with him. This is a move my wife does a lot at dinner parties. Mm-hmm. She'll get friends with one of the people that's there. And, and then they just, off. they take a bottle of wine, they take some glasses, they go out, and then there's just a party somewhere in the house going on, you know, like this is, this is <laughs> and very, you're left behind. Well, I bring it up because it's like, this just seems like a normal dinner party. It just seems it, like they, it is. Frank has done a great job of normalizing this entire situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what we saw, I'm still, no matter how begrudging he was, Bill put on a very nice spread for this dinner party, probably just out of professional pride to make Frank happy. Well, I'm that way. I mean, I you know I like to cook. Like, oh, dude. If if my wife invites some people over I don't like, I I, I still am going to cook. Like, I mean, yeah, because fuck them. That I'm is, still going to put on a good party. Well, I'm cooking for me. That doesn't have anything. Like, it doesn't. I don't. I don't care who's there necessarily. I, I if I'm cooking, I'm I'm cooking because I want to like you know cook something nice. It's fun to cook something nice when you're a cook. Joel sure. says I understand. This is because we we're left with just Bill and Joel. Joel says, I understand looking at Bill holding the gun. Joel says, it, uh, if, uh, if, if mine, mine brought mm-hmm. strangers into our situation, I wouldn't be happy either. <laughs> He'd be very careful with the language there. Probably, maybe because it, it's only, 
a few years into things, whenever Tess and Joel's relationship started, he may be a little bit ambiguous about how to refer to the two of them. He was when she died, remember? Because yeah. Tess made that comment about, you know, I, I never, never asked, asked you, you to food. feel. Yeah. So I think that Tess really wanted to be like a traditional relationship. And I think what Joel was probably after was survival partner. Probably. Mm-hmm. Is that what's it? That's what he was looking for. Um, and that, by the way, that's, that's probably the, the relationship I would have had with Bill if I'd have showed up at this thing. If he let you in, yeah, I'd have been like, uh, not not quite sure I can uh, I can be everything you want me to be, Bill, mm-hmm. but I will damn sure try because you got a great I, little area here. I'll do whatever I, I, I need to to stay in this fucking place. I will cook with you, and I don't mean that romantically. Yeah, um, teach me how to build a car battery with sulfuric acid. Holy <laughs> fuck, that's a good skill to have. So. Uh, Joel then says, but of all the people you could have found on the radio, we're actually decent people just trying to get by. I, you know, I never like when people describe themselves as decent people. Decent, yeah. Oh, I'm just a decent it, guy. It's like, it, yeah, are you? I, I immediately assume you're a used car salesman. It's like, yeah, you know, now now, I'm, now I've got doubts that you are. That sets Bill off, too. He says, oh, well, aren't I the lucky one? Joel then make he, Joel changes paths here because he realizes, hey, we're going to connect here because we're both good people isn't going to work for Bill. So he makes the sales pitch. He says, there are things they have in the QC that Bill and Frank do not have. Books, medicine, machine parts. We can help each other and get that gun out of my face. <laughs> He's finally had enough of the gun. Which Bill does. Bill puts the gun away. Joel says, so, you're a prepper or something? Bill clarifies. He was a survivalist. Survivalist. Pride. He's using pride in that term. Yeah, look who got the last laugh. I'd be proud of it, too. Bill says, maybe you are decent people. Maybe not. Doesn't matter. We're self-sufficient here. I don't need you, your friend, complicating our lives. Is that clear? Joel then goes in hard, points out Bill's fence has a eh, year tops on it, galvanized wire. Already starting to corrode. I can get you tens pools of high tinsel aluminum. Last you the rest of your life. Lives. That's hey, what does it. it because it, it he because he dangles the protection of Frank in front of him. That's, that's what everything. Does it. That's, what that's does everything. It. Hey, and contractor Joel is still representing about ways that he can use his skills to improve your property. Yeah, worked really well. As they're leaving, Frank is talking to Tess. He's giving her something. Frank then proposes the radio signals. I was thinking mm-hmm. like the decades, like 80s trouble, of course. Mm-hmm. 70s, uh, uh, they don't finish. Yeah. And so, yeah. So what we realize here is that the, they're setting the code. They're setting the, the relationship. Something that's going to endure for the next 13 years is being crystallized right here. Yeah. Joel then talks to Bill. Fedra's never going to come up here. You're well protected against the stray infected, but sooner or later there will be raiders and they'll beat that fence and your tripwires. They'll come at night quiet and armed. Very prophetic here. Bill mm. just looks at him and says, we'll be fine. But I do think Bill maybe appreciated the heads up. Maybe. I don't think he was angry at what Joel was saying. I think he was just saying, I can handle it. I very much agree. I think, I, I think he sees a bit of a kindred spirit in Joel starting in moments like this. And they're like, yeah, obviously that's going to be under threat. Obviously, I'm going to take precautions. I understand and appreciate your concern, or at least, you know, you having the same mindset as I've had for the last few years. I have to, I mean, we already know that Bill was setting traps within the first couple months. We, at this point, don't know how elaborate they are, but I'm not that much surprised when we get to see them in action here in a bit. Three years later, 2013, so now we are <laughs> 10 years after the pandemic starts, mm-hmm. we see that Bill has reinforced the fence with cars in certain sections. Whoa. Yeah. Holy smokes. How did, he get, the, how did he get the equipment to do that? I, again, he's got everything that this small town had. Far as we know, he's got a tiny crane in there somewhere. Or at least a pickup truck. Or at least a tow truck. If I did this, which I wouldn't do, but let's say somebody did it for me and allowed me to be in there, I'm totally putting up a sign that says Stars Hollow. 100%. <laughs> 
I now live in Star Tra- Traditionalist that you are. Frank is running with Bill, trying to get Bill to keep up. So he's trying to keep him healthy in here. And this this is absolutely something I would do, folks. Less life lessons out there to the kids. If you are stuck in a place, if you're working from home, if you are mm-hmm. cooped up in an area, stay active. You gotta move. You gotta move your body. It, it, it's not for not so you'll look thin, so people will find you attractive. Forget that. It's for your mental health. It will keep you sane. Move your body. If we if we also date the age of Bill and the age of Frank as being roughly the age of their actors, these guys are in their late fifties, early sixties at this point. So maintaining some level of proper exercise is in, a very important part of their ongoing health. I would be worried about cardiovascular health here because we're seeing a lot of wine. We're seeing a lot of meat. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing... Ra- like, rabbit's lane. Rabbit's lane. With a port wine sauce that I'm sure he's, you know, putting any <laughs> oil or butter or anything he can find. I, I, I think that there's a there's a danger of your cardiovascular for just being too sedentary. So I think he's just getting them up and moving. It's very smart. Yeah. It's a caring thing to do. Um, he eventually takes him to a surprise. What's the surprise, Spencer? He has negotiated a certain deal without telling Bill with uh, Tess and Joel, something that he is working under the assumption that Bill would appreciate. It's a little, I don't don't know what the collective term is, but I'll call it a little grove of strawberries. How would you feel about that if your partner did that in the middle of this sort of world-ending situation? I would be almost uncontrollably touched. That would be such a magical little gesture that you've, you've... Taken the time to plant a little bit of sweetness in the world like that. It's beautiful. It, and the reaction that Bill does is the exact reaction that I would have at that scene. You and I both. I would lose my shit. Because, they, I mean, there's no way they've had fresh fruit in no. year, they, in 10 years. And now they, what, they're chasing strawberries again. for the, This is fucking Sam telling Frodo. Do you remember the strawberries, Mr. Frodo? Do you remember I, on, on the side of Mount Doom? Do you remember I will the survive for the sake of strawberries. Yes. Oh, it's like one of – because like – I bring that up because like Tolkien was literally writing into that story. How, how, when he was writing that, I'm sure he was thinking, what, it, what is it, a quintessential example of one of life's true pleasures? And it's a ripe mm-hmm. strawberry in spring. That is what he gave him. Oh, these two. If there's ever a moment when Nick Offerman's really cute, adorable, odd little laugh is most appropriate, the sounds that he makes when he bites into that strawberry is what everybody would be feeling at that at that exact stage. They hold hands. Bill starts to get emotional, and he says this potential line at the episode. I was never afraid before you show up. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what love is. Yeah. When you live alone, when you don't rely on anyone else, when you are completely self-serving, you don't have to be afraid. But when you fall in love, that's what love is. Love is... Yeah, it's all, it's a lot of things, but in that bundle is fear because you're scared you're going to lose a person. You're scared they're going to leave. You're scared they're going to get hurt. They're scared somebody's going to be mean to them. That's what he's, that, that, he's just experiencing love basically mm-hmm. for the first time in his life. And it's a wonderful thing for him to articulate. I, 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 on that exact vein, I love the lines even before that of where he says, I'm sorry for what? Getting older faster than you. That is straight love right there of where you're just feeling sad already that you're not going to be around for as long as you want to be with your partner. And it also ends up being a sort of interesting. Tragic. Yeah. Considering what ends up happening. So cut tonight and it happens. It happens, Spencer. Game on. Let's go. Let's roll. It's fight time. The Raiders have come. They come at night. Score this for me. Score this for me. I'm curious of your thoughts about how how we score this particular bout. (sighs) We'll, we'll, We'll get through it. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, they well, it's not, not not much to talk about. They start trying to attack, and they're trying to hit the wires. They're eradicated. And the flamethrowers start hitting them. We get it from Frank's perspective. He wakes up. He runs outside. He gets a gun in the process. Bill is just firing at them in the middle of the street. Nothing protect him. It's the only thing that Bill does here, this entire thing that confuses me. Why he doesn't try to find, like, put, drive his car out there, get behind the car, do something to have something behind. So he's not just standing in the middle of the street shooting. I, I think there's a certain element of being on tilt here. That the guy, the guy is practiced. He's thought through this. We don't necessarily know whether he has much in the way of individual combat experience, like he's a veteran or anything else. But drawing off the last scene, I bet when he first saw those sensors go off there, he went out there with a righteous, must protect my love and world rage that he's not even necessarily thinking clearly. This is a guy that's gone full Papa Bear right now and protecting his partner who's asleep back in bed. You don't need that street to be wide open. I would have put a bunker there. Something should, to hide behind. Should have behind. built some defensive implements, yeah. Absolutely. During this, Bill gets shot. Frank tanks him inside, and we see the Raiders literally be- being set on fire. Uh, Bill doesn't play around. Frank uses alcohol, works to take the bullet out. Bill then tells him to leave the gas on. The fence will get the rest of the Raiders. It sounds like it does, because it kind of gets quiet out there. Or at least they run away when they start seeing their, their, I would. their kin burned alive. There are easier targets in the world than whatever the hell is behind this fence. Fucking Macaulay Culkin here. <laughs> Jesus. Goodies. And I get a paint can in the head and tar on the top of my skull. And uh, by the sound of things outside, it's quiet. He says, I've made copies of all the keys. Call Joel. You can't be here alone. He says, call Joel four times in this speech. Oh, yeah. So that tells me that in the back of Bill's mind, he's thinking, like, Bill, basically, Joel is, is one of me. He's He's in my little circle. Like he can, he can protect this place. He can protect you, Frank. He can do what I am doing. He's a, a kin- it's a lot of a respect. Kin- a kindred spirit. Put some respect on Joel's name is what he's done. Cut to twenty twenty three, and <clears throat> this is the tragic part. We see Frank is in a wheelchair. Spencer, what do you, what disease do you think that they are? We had a big argument about this in House of the Dragon. Right, because it was leprosy, but they never well, said the word leprosy. So you kept saying <laughs> some sort of de- degenerative condition. They don't mm-hmm. say what this is. What do you think it is? I thought it was neurological, particularly. I mean, they they show that he's lost he's lost use of his legs, or at least heavily restricted in the use of them. We show that he's having a lot more a lot harder time holding things and a lot more difficulty with precise works of like his uh, paintbrush, like how his art is decaying on one side of the face compared to the other. So I was thinking something along the lines of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, maybe some element of muscular dystrophy. That was my thought. I've heard some people ponder cancer, but I don't think that fits necessarily as well with the neurological. But who can say for sure, other than the data point that we get that they couldn't have cured this before the apocalypse happened? I've known multiple people with ALS. This looks like ALS. And and it's important that they say they, they couldn't do anything. He says you couldn't do anything for this. Yeah. Before, right? That's where we're at with ALS, right? Like some of these Sadly, disease, yes. some of these diseases, like um, what is it that Michael J. Fox has? Parkinson's. Parkinson's. They can do some things for. They can't they can. cure it, but they can do some things. They can't really do shit for Lou Gehrig's. I think he has Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, I, I, that that is my thought as well. I think it fits well. We uh, see that Frank has taken up painting. He looks to be a pretty good painter, dude. He's good. Like I, I, I George adore, W. Bush situation. I adore. Sure. Yes. He is. I adore it because somebody picked it up later in life and got good at painting. George W. Bush did that. I'm willing to believe that Frank had some artistic background before this as well, because he is, I love that he has filled their world. He has filled this home, which is little works of art in every corner. 
faces they've seen, people they've met, images they've seen, their world, the beauty has been added to their world the way that he was talking about with Bill years ago. And clearly Bill has gotten on the same page. It's beautiful. I believe he's painted Joel too. I think we have a Joel. I think um, we do as well. Or at least uh, uh, something that looks like him. They've done an incredible job of aging these two throughout the episode. We talked about that before, but it, it really does look realistic, especially in these scenes in 2023. Mm-hmm. Inside, they're eating a lot of vegetables on the plate, I'm sure from their garden. Bill helps Frank take his pills. Bill puts Frank to bed. Frank doesn't fall asleep right away. Bill wakes up. Frank has gotten himself into the chair, which sets Bill off. Bill's like, hey, I got to get you back in bed. He's worried he's going to fall. Frank says, I will not fall. I promise you I'm going to stay up. Why? Because it's my last day. So did, did, not did only. You know, so, did you know immediately what he meant? Yes, absolutely. I did. Yeah. So not only are we dealing with the world ending apocalypse, you know, pandemic, all of that stuff. We also have this found love story right in the mm-hmm. middle of it. Then we also deal with aging. And we talk about aging and how that aging even in this loss. Yeah. But, and now we're talking about assisted suicide and, and the, the feeling of, you know, is it okay for someone to choose when they go or do, you know, should they not choose that? Um, man, I can't wait to get to the ethical part of the episode, Spencer. I think you got some questions for me. We got topics. We got things for me to present to the board. Whew. Got to them sitting downstairs. Bill asked, what if we find it? So Bill is, he's dealing with the, stages of loss right because now he is in denial he's saying what if we find a doctor what if someone shows up who can help frank says who's coming bill the door-to-door mri salesman again making me think it's als there wasn't anything to cure this before the world fell apart i've made up my mind mm-hmm. now Which, here's another thing he may not know exactly what he has he may be, I, he may suspect als but there's nobody to diagnose him no, I mean, I, I'm amazed enough that they've got that they have some category of pills to treat them. I guess they're just reporting symptoms back to Joel and Tess, and they're talking to whatever doctors or medicals they can to get some kind of pills out there to help. But yeah, that, they're just at best they'd be speculating. They're just painkillers. Uh, cut to them. Um, cut to Bill, and he's crying. Well, good, good God, is he crying? Is he? I'm crying with him. This guy's face is just pain. It is just, he is already feeling all of the loss right upon him. If you didn't cry in this episode, I feel bad for you because uh, this is this is art that is worthy of touching someone to crying, in my opinion. I think mm-hmm. it, I think this story between these two that they, you called it a, a, a bottle or a ship in a bottle a, type thing. Bo- yeah, bottle episode. <laughs> yeah, bottle episode. Um, to me, it's worthy of, of that type of outpouring of emotion. I mean, it is so identifiable what's happening here. If anybody has seen someone age and seen someone come to the realization, it's kind of over for me. Like, that's it. Like, this is the end of the run. That's a tough thing to watch. Some, like, and most of the time it happens this way, where the person who comes to that realization is at more peace than the people around them. I love the emotional state that they're both in as a result of this. Because Bill's come to terms with this. Bill's probably been thinking about this for months, years. No, 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 Frank. Sorry, sorry, Frank's been thinking about this for months, years, whatever whatever else. Bill's just now having to rapidly come to terms with it. So Frank is the one that is trying to reassure Bill. Yeah, that's what always happens. It's like, I, I love that he made a transition. Like, he's coming, come, come here close to me, I'll console you. And immediately goes into a wonderful speech about, you know, I'm not going to say every day was great. Was it? Had a lot of bad days. But the best days I ever spent were with you. <sighs> well, no, he actually, he actually quantifies it. He says... I've had more good days with you than anyone else. It's an even more, more which I feel, I feel like mm-hmm. is a great way to sum up a partnership, which yeah. is, you know, I made a decision to, to, to hitch my wagon with you 
And as mm-hmm. a result of that, no, everything's never going to be perfect. But as a result no. of that, my life got appreciably better. And I think mm-hmm. what else can you say? At the end of a partnership, then you made my life better. Is there anything better to say? No, there is no more magical thing to say. So he says what he wants for his last day. Toast. Start with toast. Apparently the, the flour supply is a little better now, so they're they're back on hey, they're back on carbs. Wouldn't put it past them that they're actually growing and milling their own wheat. Who the hell knows? It's possible. Cut to the boutique. Uh, then, then they want to pick up outfits and he's going to pick out an outfit for Bill and Bill will wear it by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, They'll mm-hmm. get married. They'll get married. Apparently they've never, they've never done that little ceremony for themselves and Bill will cook a fabulous dinner, which I'm sure he will. And Bill will crush up all the pills, put them in his wine. He'll drink it. And then Bill will take him to bed and he will die in his arms. Bill just sits there and cries. And it is, oh my God, the acting here from Ron Swanson, Nick Offerman is unfucking real. He is, he is actively shattering while trying to tape himself together for the sake of his partner at the same time. It, 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 beautiful, wonderful acting. Are we assuming that these are sleeping pills or painkillers or some category thereof? I think it's painkillers. Yeah, mm. I think that. I think that's what. I mean, that's what we know. Joel has. Yeah, and that's we what know he's got that the most if you have ALS is a painful disease, so I'm sure that he needs painkillers. And and what else? What other type of? I mean, we know Joel has access to painkillers, and we know that. I don't know, 40, 40 oxys to a person who, you know, is used to taking two will kill you. So pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, well, actually not that quickly. It'll take a little while. So that's why they, that's why they have mm. a little moment there together. Right. Like they get, they actually die high, which look, I'm not look. I don't want anybody out here overdosing on pills. Right. Please mm. do not do that. But they do die, Luckily here, but they do die high. I'm just saying, mm. um, Bill just cries and says, I can't. So this is the assisted suicide conversation. It is. That I think, if anybody's ever had to have it, my heart goes out to you. I haven't, but I can only imagine how difficult it has to be. When he says, I can't. I mean, I think that's real. I, th- I don't think that Bill says that flippantly. I think no, Bill no, thought about that and says, I cannot do this. Mm-hmm. I can't kill you. Like, <laughs> you're asking too much of me. And that's when he says, then if you love me, then love me the way I want you to. Oh. And that is, that's the assisted suicide argument, which is... Yeah. You know, if I'm at, you know, if I'm at the end of my life, I've got this disease. I want to go, and I'm asking you to help me. That you doing that is an act of love. It's not murder. Yeah. It's not killing. Right? It's the whole Jack Kevorkian argument that he went on a life's crusade, which is it's an act of love. It's not an act of, of violence or murder. We will unpack the shit out of that here shortly. And we get a wonderful, painful, poignant scene of them doing exactly what Frank wanted. And the music playing in the background is a wonderful piece. If you don't have it on your iPhone or available for streaming quickly, you need to find it. It's On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter. It is a gorgeous piece. Thank you. I didn't actually know the name of that. Uh, we see Bill sitting in, waiting for dinner. Guess what it is, Spencer? Rabbit for the Beaujolais. And guess what? He places, places the plate down just so. It's, it's beautiful. I love that there's no dialogue during the last day together. We just get to see them experience it go through each step. And it's lovely and it's heartfelt. And I'm sobbing as I'm going through this already. And we're not even at dinner yet. We see Bill come in with a new bottle of wine, two glasses. He pours two glasses and in one he pours powder and stirs it up. Gives the glass with the powder to Frank, who does drink it. Mm-hmm. So Frank's we- on the clock. With, with the question of will it be enough, there's a certain element of doubt and concern there, which... Well, he doesn't want to Bill, suffer, which, you know, fair enough. Bill is here to reassure him that it is taken care of. After that, Bill chugs his glass. Now, we have seen Bill drink gla- wine for years now. He's never... He is not a chugger. Nope. 
And when he does, Frank on edge. that sets Frank up and he looks at him. And I don't know if he caught it, but as soon as he chucks the glass, Frank looks at him concerned and Bill does a slight nod. Yeah, it was very much a, yep. And Frank Bad. looks at the bottle of wine. And he says, where they're already pills in the bottle. And Bill says enough to kill a horse. So Bill uh, is, he's going to go out with Frank here. That's what he's decided. I positively adore the last lines these two share with each other here in this scene of where. Give it to us. Bill says, this isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. And you were my purpose is such a magical way of summarizing his perspective on their relationship and what it has meant to him and how valuable it has been. You were my purpose. Save who you can save. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Followed up by Frank saying, I do not support this. I should be furious. But from an objective point of view, it's incredibly romantic. What's the, is it Hamlet, the one where they all die at the end? What's the Shakespeare one where they all die at the end? A lot of them, but Hamlet's the one that's famous for it. Yeah, so this isn't, but but what Bill's saying is this isn't Hamlet. This isn't Mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet. Like, I am happy. This isn't a bad, this isn't a bad end to my story. Mm -hmm. And again, this is getting into questions of people's own ability to, you know, like those, you know, we have a predominantly American audience. Those who are Christian probably view this as something amoral that you you don't choose when you go. God chooses when you go. I think what the show is telling us is that these two particular characters do not view it as amoral. They think um, that they get to choose when they go. And right now they're, they're choosing now. And I also, I, my quote, uh, my, my notes just say, oh, my God, tears. Oh, my God. Make Spencer talk now. <laughs> I mean, I, so Spencer I, talk. It's incredibly well acted. It's incredibly well done. I even think the line about this isn't a tragic suicide in the play, like you said, it's referencing so many tragedies like Hamlet and whatever else. I almost feel like it's an in-genre comment, too, about so many stories about gay love have to end in tragedy if one of them is murdered, or one of them commits suicide AIDS. because the world is too much. AIDS, sure. It's a genre within a subgenre, I feel like. I think this is almost putting a spin on that, that no, no, no. This isn't that. This isn't the world was too much for us. This isn't, oh, look what the world made them do or inflicted upon them. This is an end that we're both choosing for ourselves out of profound love for each other and what we meant for each other. It almost, it's sad, it's tragic, but almost should be celebrated. It's like, as he said, I should be furious. From an objective point of view, it's incredibly romantic. Because they're going out together with the person they love more than anything, the one that has meant more than anything on their own terms at their own time in each other's arms. Whatever you else you may remove assisted suicide from the equation, if you like, whatever else, I think we all could hope for such an end. But this is what I'm saying. I think you and I are of a like mind here. Hmm. I think some of our audience will not be. And I just want to give them that acknowledgement that there are people who think that you should not choose your own end, that God should choose that. And if you believe that, um, I respect your right to believe it. I'm not trying, to, poop, I'm not trying to poo-poo that. Yeah. I will get to it, but I... I'm okay with how they end. Um, so cut back to present day. There is a there is a merited philosophical debate on this question. No 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 judgment at all attached either way. Yeah, I mean, I have my own beliefs, but I'm not I'm not saying that like uh, I, you 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 are quote wrong or I, mm-hmm. you know anything about how you feel. It's just uh, when we get to that point, I do have my own perspective on it. So cut to present day. We see the town they lived in was called Lincoln. Did you see that? I did. Uh, Joel and. Uh, is, is that is that a log cabin Republicans joke to a certain degree too? I think a little bit, yeah. A little bit Maybe out, out in the woods, yeah. Uh, Joel and uh, Ellie come to the fence, and Joel puts in the code, and they go in. We walk in. The first thing we see, 
are candles that have burned out. And I think that's when I knew. So, cause I, I had a thought that maybe one of them, it didn't kill him or it wasn't enough, or, you know, maybe they survived this. They just woke up. But when I saw the candle burned out and nobody had cleaned it up, I knew it was, a, it, it worked. Uh, also, also just to provide clarity, uh, Lincoln, Massachusetts is a real town has popular, had a population of 8,000 people in the year 2000. So small, small town, Massachusetts. Can you look away, look up how far away from Boston it is? I will look it up while you're talking. Uh, they walk in and Ellie says, what the fuck? Because she's like, this is like the Taj Mahal. Yeah. This is the nicest thing I've ever seen. Joel starts calling for Bill and Frank. Ellie asks, what if they're gone? Joel does not have an answer to that. We see the dinner table with the wine glasses and the powder and the leftover rabbit bones. And so we know it worked. They are gone. Uh, 15.4 miles to Center City if you walk. There it is. That's perfect because it's exactly what you called yes exactly what i called yeah ellie touches the piano she probably hasn't seen a piano like ever looks around she's a note in a key joel knocks in the bedroom door and it's locked thank goodness he doesn't go in there um not because joel can't handle dead people it's just because i don't think bill wanted joel to see him that way i don't um, think the i don't think i the audience could have handled seeing that i'm very glad we didn't in the entire episode i appreciated their discretion agreed uh i thought they were going to show us that there at the end i was very concerned uh, better off he, they didn't he goes uh so she, Joel, doesn't push the door in and he goes over to where she is and she's reading the letter and she says, it's from Bill to whomever, but probably Joel. And she says, I think I classified as whomever. I think I, think I, I can be whomever. <laughs> Joel walks over, sees the key to the truck and just says, so they're dead. And Ellie goes, uh-huh. Yep. She says, you want to read it? And Joel says, go ahead, you do it. Then we get Bill's goodbye letter. Do you want to read this? Do you want to, do you want to give the audience the, the Spencer soliloquy? Do you have it or do you want me to do it? I, I, I have it. I have it written out. Go ahead. Um, if you find this, please do not come into the bedroom. We left a window open so the house wouldn't smell, but it will probably be a sight. I'm guessing you found this, Joel, because anyone else would have been electrocuted or blown up by one of my traps. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love that she reads the <laughs> As him. It's like it's like she's seen Parks and Rec and she's doing the, the Nick Offer. <laughs> She, you know, he does have that sort of laugh. He's yeah. done through different characters, right? Take anything you need. The bunker code is the same as the gate code, but in reverse. Anyway, I never liked you, but still, it's like we're friends, almost. And I respect you. I really believe him when he says that. I respect you. So I'm going to tell you something, You'll, because you're probably the only person who will understand. I used to hate the world, and I was happy when everybody died. But I was wrong, because there was one person worth saving. That's what I did. I saved him. And then I protected him. That's why men like you and me are here. We have a job oh, to do. Man. And God help any motherfucker who stand in our way. Oh, I, I leave you with all my part. weapons and equipment. Oh. Use them to keep. Yep. That last part where he's like, that's why men like you and me are here. Yeah. It's... Speaks so much to what how he viewed his last... 20 30 years of life 20 and and what in joel too and how joel sees his life yeah it's the purpose he didn't even know that he was ever going to have it's the purpose that he found it's the purpose that made his life there in the end so uh, she, it, it she, just go ahead the fact that it ends on them they use them to keep did you immediately know who the letter was going to say there yes and God, does that hit like a ton of bricks on both us and on Ellie and particularly on Joel as he pulls up the letter and it says, Tess safe. Keep Tess safe. But I think 
save who you can save. I think you can. I think he even does that this episode as he I, substitutes I, it in for Ellie. And I, I almost feel like that this is an additional philosophy that's being put on Joel so as to motivate him to keep going. That we heard from Tess previously that Tess had a bit of a more positive view and hope for mankind. That you know you need to do this to redeem what we've done in the past and also possibly save the world. This is what we can do to give back. This is what we can do to seek some element of redemption and peace in the world. Meanwhile, in a much more personal level, Bill's the one that's telling Joel, find somebody to protect, find someone to give you meaning, find someone to give you purpose, and that's everything. Everything else is crap. Save You Can Save is so important for Joel because he, perfect world, he would just be living with his daughter, but he couldn't save yeah. his daughter. Yeah. After that perfect world, he'd be living with Tess, but he couldn't save Tess. It's like he is having to go down the line of mm-hmm. the person standing in front of you as the most important person, right? Like, and, and that, that such, such good writing to give him that line, save who you can save. Yeah. So he looks at the truck and guess what? No battery in it. And for a second, I think, oh, fuck, really? And then he looks in the fridge and he sees why. I, I do love Joel saying, stay here and going outside to grieve for a second. As much as he can, stolid individual that he is. Well, wait a second. Do you think individual. he's grieving for Bill, or do you think he's affected by the sentence, use all this to keep Tess safe, and he already hasn't been able to keep Tess safe? The latter. I, I, I think I, I think you know, he may be sad from a certain standpoint when it comes to Bill and Frank, but he's pretty stone cold to the world for, uh, from what he's been through and endured. Focusing it on the loss of Tess, he was barely coming to terms with that as is, and that one just hits him all harder. And I think he's probably incredibly frustrated because if, if he could have just gotten Tess there, mm-hmm. he could have just posted up with her. I mean, and he does. Could, he wants to. Go, have, he wants to. Go, life. Maybe he. Maybe he goes out and checks on his brother first, but he could absolutely live there. I mean, like Bill doesn't address that in his note, but he has everything he needs to continue the life that Bill and Frank had there. And Joe and Tess would have had the skills necessary to do so. Yep. So. What could have been. Yeah. And maybe he will. Maybe that's what he ends up doing. Maybe he goes and Mm -hmm. and delivers Ellie to find the cure and everybody's saved. And he comes back and he lives out his life in Lincoln. Who knows? We'll see. You have to keep watching, folks. He looks at the truck and guess what? No battery. But he smiles, sees why in the fridge. Mm -hmm. Bill builds his own batteries with sulfuric acid. God damn that guy's Skills. I had to Google Skills. this to make sure it was a thing. It is a thing. Mm-hmm. It's got to charge him for a certain degree of time. Guess what Bill couldn't do in 2023? He couldn't Google it to make sure it's a thing. Fuck, I had to just know it. <laughs> I, find a library if your town still has one. Get some key books on chemical engineering and knowledge. Get this done. Oh, dude. You are like, so, to, so along with having a generator and a power supply, right? Having the natural gas. I need somebody like a bill because the first thing I'd be trying to find is the DVD collection because you can't stream anything anymore because all the servers are yep. down. But Physical media. Find the DVDs, find the books. These are the things that are going to keep me sane. Yeah. Um, Joel uh, walks back inside. Ellie is still sitting there. She looked kind of affected by all this. Did you notice that? She very much looked like she was affected by, you know, the new world that she's discovered and the loss that is reminded her of. Yeah. He says, show me your arm. She does. And it's better. It's fine. Mm-hmm. He tells her, here's the deal. Going out to Wyoming to try to help my brother. Uh, I guess, I'm guessing my brother can figure out some of where the fireflies are. He's a former, he's his former firefly. So we'll see about that. Um, Who, maybe we can find the people who want you, get you to the right lab, et cetera, et cetera. Ellie says, look, listen, about Tess. Joel cuts her off. Now, 
My question for you. What do you think she was going to say about Tess? I think... I think she was going to provide a little bit more empathy than she did previously. Previously, she was a little bit of browbeating on the subject. It's not my fault. You shouldn't blame me. You all made your own decisions. Yeah, stop giving me shit, basically. I think this time she was going to offer a little bit more in the way of empathy. That, you know, I, I said that earlier, and I mean that, but I am really still sorry that you lost somebody that you cared about. Because claim that he did. I, I think that's, I, that was my assumption about where she was going for for that. Yeah, I felt like she was going to say something along the lines of, like, it's not your fault. Like you, you same yeah. category. Sure. Yeah. Because I think that she sees that Joel takes everything on his shoulders the same way Bill did. Yeah. I think Joel carries every weight of every weight of his life with him on his back at all times. So Spencer, what are Joel's rules of the road? Rule number one, don't bring up Tess ever. Under matter any fact, circumstance. Yeah. Matter of fact, we keep our histories to ourselves. Oof. Rule two, you don't tell anyone about your, condition they see the bite mark they won't think it through they'll just shoot you true fair very fair rule three you do what i say when i say it we clear what you say goes so she kind of repeats it Um, it's an effective summary of everything that came before joel tells her they can grab what they can so uh when ellie sees the bunker she freaks and says uh well i've been thinking this entire episode this guy was a genius yes ellie he was (laughs) Um, she asked why music was playing and Joel explained the system. If he didn't reset the countdown, he being Bill didn't reset the countdown. Think bunker and lost. Think you have to be down there to repress the buttons to stop the explosion bunker and lost. Mm-hmm. Um, then an eighties playlist would run over the radio. We know the code already. So God, this is tragic. So when we heard the eighties music in the end of the first episode, it wasn't because there was some additional imminent threat to humanity. We weren't aware of. It was because Bill and Frank were dead. Yeah. It gives us a bit of a date on the present. I remember we've actually got a precise date on the present or not anyway, but they, eh. the, le- the letter was dated the end of August. So it has to be relatively maybe a week or two compared to the present yeah. or something. Yeah. So yeah, it, it has been a recent event that we didn't get to meet them in real time. He asked her to grab some cans. Uh, she asked about a gun. He says, no, again, three, three times now this episode. No, I'll throw the gun. She takes toilet paper and boxes and supplies. He gives her some woman's shirts. I'm guessing they were taken from the boutique or maybe it's his mother's old shirts. She takes a shower. She tells him to take a shower. He sort of smiles at that. Four and a half. She fails. Four, four and a half is where we're at? We're four and a half right now. She fails at setting a grandfather clock, which is the most young person, Gen Z, millennial thing to do. Like not Straight knowing breaks how to, the thing. Not knowing how to fuck with a grandfather clock. Those things are very foreign to me, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, and looking around, finds a gun. And guess what she does, Spencer? Pockets it. She takes it. That is going to come up later. And that yeah. is going to be a big problem for Joel. Quick question, by the way. Joel has been continually anti-gun and Ellie in the same sentence from the moment that we had the two of them together. What do you make of the reasons why? Uh, because when he first met her, she was completely fucking out of control. She there, has there rage was feral issues. Ellie, yes. She has rage issues. She's never been taught how to use a gun properly. She doesn't understand the infected. She doesn't even know the threats that they are under. She doesn't know the threat of the Raiders. She doesn't know the way. She doesn't know any of the allies that Joel may have on this path on the way. Giving her a gun is just asking for fucking trouble. Plus, Joel probably thinks he can keep her safe himself, so she doesn't need one. So, Lee, it sounds like you've got concerns about this development that the man has a Beretta, that she now has a Beretta in her back. It's not a good idea. It's really not a good idea for her to have one. I think I'm with Joel there. 
Um, but we'll see. We'll see. He comes down having showered. Well, don't you look nice? They take off. He gives her deodorant. And they get in the car- truck. And guess what? She's fucking amazed by the truck. <laughs> I love this I, little development. I, I love her description of it as being a spaceship. She's never been in a car before. This is a magical thing that she's in. Who needs the magic school bus? She's got her own right here. And he says seatbelt. And she's like, uh, say what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would you say? I, I'm wearing a belt. Yeah, so he uh, he reaches over and, and gives puts the seatbelt on her. It's a, easily a five at this point. Easily mm-hmm. a five. It's it, it it ticks up through this episode considerably. And then she takes a tape out, cassette tape. <clears throat> I'm positively amazed that she even knows what this is. Well, it's 2003, right? Is when the world ended. So there yeah. was there was still a lot more cassettes in 2003 than there is now. Fair point. Very fair point. Um, he's telling her not to. <clears throat> which I'm not sure why he's doing that, but she puts it in. And when he hears it, he says, no, 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 leave it in. And what is the song, Spencer? We're back to Linda Ronstadt again. <clears throat> long, long time by Linda mm-hmm. Ronstadt. They leave the gate and take off. We see the end of the episode from the perspective of the open window, which is the final resting place of Bill and Frank. R.I.P. Bill and Frank, the love story I didn't know I needed in the middle of a zombie show. I didn't know I wanted to watch. So ends a wonderful episode. Sir, I got to ask you, before we even get into our segments, how do you score this? Out of 10, where does this episode fall for you? Nine. nine. Solid nine. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't... I, look, I still don't give a fuck about the whole zombie thing. That 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 whole premise is not me. But don't need I, to. Focus but, on the episode. Exactly. But the, what I'm discovering in this show is that they probably know that their concept is not going to land for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so... What they're doing is giving the people like me enough reason to keep watching that's not zombie stuff. That the, it's, it's just a love story about a guy who had trouble fitting in, who, who, who didn't know that he needed another person, didn't know that he needed human affection. And then through that love found purpose in this absolutely batshit crazy existence. I love the story, absolutely. You bring up a good point. I saw several critics online that were saying how gutsy the show was to, by episode three, do a bottle episode that almost treated the main characters being background. I think it is, but as you noted, it also is a very smart move as well to draw in a completely disseparate audience. It's generating an incredible word of mouth the show otherwise wasn't getting. It's appealing to an aspect, to an asp- a, a, sup- a, susp- a part of the audience that wasn't necessarily as in for the themes the show was representing, particularly the focus of the word of mouth of what it was about. I think it's a really smart move on their part to vastly broaden the show's demographic in the early going and show people that are on the fence and certain whatever else that whether you like this or not, whether this is your thing or not, we can create art here. We can tell stories that'll move you. And if you trust us, we'll keep doing it. After the end of episode one, I wouldn't have watched episode two absent the podcast. At the end of episode two, I wouldn't have watched episode three absent the podcast. At the end of episode three, I will watch the rest of the season. Doesn't matter if we keep doing the podcast or not. They've, so they've convinced me that even though maybe next episode they go back to zombie chasing, they've convinced me that they could tell stories well enough that there is going to be something for me in these next six episodes. I, I will I will have a certain aspect of pride then that I've been able to continue mo- motivate you by professional dedication to keep going with the show. Absolutely. All right. That ends our recap, episode three, long, long time. Spencer, do you have any nominees? Do you have a hundred nominees for best line of the episode? Get a few, get a few. Uh, I'll try to go through some of them quickly so I don't read through two pages of the damn things. But uh, number one, 
Uh, the entire Joel description of as to how Cordyceps mutated and what the last day of basically the civilization of mankind was. It's well delivered. It provides an explanation for the audience. It is so effectively <laughs> presented, described, and tense that even Ellie is left with just saying thank you sincerely afterwards. It's a, it's a powerful little bit to start off the episode with. One wonderful line that just tickles me is uh, Bill underground hearing the soldiers up above say, not today, you new world jackboot fucks. That was wonderful. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a fun line. It's so also good. really well delivered. Uh, uh, Frank and Bill meeting. All right, look, first, my name's Frank. Oh, yeah? Well, here's the thing, Frank. If I feed you, then every bum you talk to about it is going to show up here looking for a fresh lunch, and a free lunch, and this is not an Arby's. Well, Arby's didn't have free lunch. It was a restaurant. I'm laughing already. Guy at gunpoint, tense episode, I'm laughing. Um, line from a little bit later, Bill and Frank again. Is it actually almost all the lines from here are Bill and Frank? That's going to get repetitive, but I'm just going to keep saying it. Uh, is it an antique? Uh, 1948. Wow. You know how much these are worth? Well, currently nothing. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to rate it as a best as a best quote just because it's great and fits the themes of the show perfectly, or particularly this episode perfectly. But long, long time by Linda Ronstadt. I'm just going to put that up for best quote of the episode. Sure. Uh, coming from Frank again. Our home isn't just our house; it is everything around us. Uh, another one. Uh, you live in a psycho bunker where 9-11 was an inside job and the government are all Nazis. The government are all Nazis. Well, yeah, now, but not then. Uh, another one from Frank. Jesus, a lot from Frank. Uh, paying attention to things, it's how we show love. This is my street, too. Just let me love it the way I want to. Uh, Frank, again, I traded Joel and Tess one of your guns for a packet of seeds. Which gun? A little one. I like the delivery on a little one. Just like, calm your jets. It's okay. Uh, Bill, back to Frank. I'm sorry. For what? Getting older faster than you. Ah, uh, I like you older. Older means we're still here. And then Bill back. I was never afraid before you showed up. Uh, Frank to Bill. Well, I'm not going to give you the every day was a wonderful gift from God speech. I've had a lot of bad days. I've had bad <laughs> days with you too, but... I've had more good days with you than with anyone else. Frank again. Do you love me? And then over... Oh, <laughs> Bill just cutting through tears to even say it. Yes. Then love me the way I want you to. So the, the focus on let me love the neighborhood the way that I want to. Let me, you know, love me the way I want you to love me. Like... I think there's a there's an intense focus in their relationship on the fact that love is not about control. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, letting – matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. It's about letting people be themselves and be safe and do what they want to do, right? It's not about like, oh, I love you, therefore you you do what I say. Yeah, They're, they're really focusing in the dialogue that love is not about control, which I really like because I think a lot of people get that confused. Very good point. Uh, this is uh, Bill back to Frank. This isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. You were my purpose. Frank back. I do not support this. I should be furious. But from an objective point of view, it's incredibly romantic. Take me to bed. Uh, Ellie reading uh, Bill's letter. I was needing a good laugh to kind of come out of the funk I was in after that scene between the two of them heartwarming as it was, bittersweet as it was, but her narrating, <laughs> as 
Frank, as Bill apparently felt the need to write that in there for his just morbid love of his traps he's been setting up around this place was hilarious. He knew he was writing to Joel. Like, I don't even yes. know why he didn't even, he should have just addressed it to Joel. Uh, another great one from, uh, from Bill here. Anyway, I never liked you, but still it's like we're friends almost. And I respect you. So I'm going to tell you something because you probably the only person who will understand. I used to hate the world and I was happy when everybody died, but I was wrong because there was one person worth saving. That's what I did. I saved him and I protected him. That's why men like you and me are here. We have a job to do. And God help any motherfucker who stands in our way. My nominees, sir. Any, any ones that work for you? Yes. So I'm actually picking a honorable mention and a winner this year or this episode, both of which you have actually nominated. So, first time for everything. First time for everything. You have actually nominated both the winners this week. So honorable mention this week, best line of the episode, episode three, Last of Us is... Paying attention to things, it's how you show love. Mm-hmm. And there's so much of a focus on what love is. A Just a great representation of two people falling in love, being in love, and that love running its course through the end of aging and disease and death. Wonderful, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I think that the actual best line of the episode does have to tie a little bit back into the story, as much as I dislike that. And I think this line does that very well, which is... So I'm going to tell you something. You're probably the only person who will understand. Yeah. I used to hate the world and I was happy when everyone died, but I was wrong because there was one person worth saving. That's what I did. I saved him. Then I protected him. That's why men like you and me are here. I, so it's because, it, I mean, the whole, I mean, what we, it seems like narratively what we're building to yeah. is Joel's purpose to save Ellie. Like, how does he, how do we get this guy who's out on the world, who is hardened, who's chugging whiskey and dropping oxys just to sleep at night, who Mm -hmm. everyone is scared of. How do we get him to a point that he has affection, concern, genuine love for this rabid animal, Ellie? That's what we're building toward, it seems. Yeah, and this is one interesting point you focus on here. I saw some people criticizing line. They said, well, this episode is disconnected from the plot. It's not moving the story forward. I think that letter and the effect that it has on Joel, the message it sends for Joel and Ellie's relationship, that alone is moving the story forward because it's an important point. It's an important moment. It seems to have a profound effect on Joel. And I don't think that that could just be so easily brushed aside as being, you know, an ir- irrelevant coda to, another, to the rest of the episode. Completely agree. All right. That's the best line of the episode. Let's talk about familial part of the episode. What is your familiar scene of the episode, Spencer? I can't pick just one scene for this. Bill and Frank are one of the most heartwarming, positive relationships I've seen on television in a long damn time. Uh, I, What they represent and bring to each other as a couple, what they have to say about love and their affection and purpose for each other, it's things that should be repeated and things I just don't see enough either in the world or particularly on media and television. I... It's, it, it's hard necessarily to call a relationship between two people a familial relationship, but... They've got love to share regardless of what of how you want to label it. Yeah, I think that the, the first sex scene, or the only sex scene, is really important because so often in, in media, you know, gay sex gets portrayed as something forbidden that's done in a hostile way, an aggressive way. There might be some element of rape. It's done while people were intoxicated or drunk. Um, it's something that people regret later. These are all the representations we get of it. This is the exact opposite. This just looks like two people having sex for the first time. Especially mm-hmm. when one is particularly not experienced. 
it's it's no different than how you would portray portray it with a uh, man and a woman or two women or two non-binary people or any combination thereof. Mm-hmm. I like that. Like I like that it's just, like they 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 don't like they're just showing you two people in love. They're not trying to show you two quote gay people in the way that you would get in a lot of popular media. I love that. I think we need more of that representation that like gay sex just sex. Like let's mm-hmm. let's stop let's stop stigmatizing it. Like that a lot. But nothing to me um beats when he's sitting there with the strawberries and he says, you know, I was not afraid until you came along. Because I think that's that's Bill just saying he doesn't know it, but he's saying like I I'm in love. Like I just I this is I actually fallen in love here. Like that's right. what this is. That he might as well have just said I love you, like cuz that's what he's saying when he says now I have fear because as a as I pointed out earlier, that's what love introduces in your life, an element of healthy fear that you just mm-hmm. you have to have in order to reap the benefits of what love gives you. A, a, a sense of value a sense of loss a sense of what the world will be like without now that this has been made a part of it uh, i'm gonna give an audible mention to a joel and ellie scene too but it's one we didn't focus on as much but when joel is trying to protect shower ellie, you have to shower not not even a cute scene a protective scene but when, ah, joel, when, when joel was trying to protect ellie from looking into that charnel pit from mm-hmm. looking into that ah, mass yes. grave that was early but the fact that he basically just said, I don't want you to see that, or I don't think you should see that, or I think it might be hurtful for you to see that. He is already feeling an element of familiar protection to her, even if he could never put a certain label on it, even if he's going to be still snarky and hostile with respect to it. I thought that was a nice little addition right there. I completely agree. Uh, that was really great. Spencer, do you want to get into some ethical questions of the episode? We've already broached this topic multiple times during the recap. Uh, let's get into a few. Um, let's... As usual, we're to go through. I'm going to present these to the board in the order by which they occurred in the episode, so we can assess them in that light. Hear ye, hear ye! Call, something to say. Call this meeting to order. There's been a few HR instances lately that we need to address and discuss. Uh, issue number one: uh, Some people propose that we should be killing the uninfected so as to reduce the po- potential population of the infected and protect those who are uninfected but are within a zone that we can sufficiently supply and resource. What does the board have to say on the ethics of doing that? No. Good, good conversation. Yes. Please continue. No. Like what, what are, this is where uh, we have to back up and say, what are we doing here? Like, guys, let's, let's stop for a second. What's our purpose? Our purpose is to defeat this disease, right? What mm-hmm. does that look like? It looks like humans living healthy without cordyceps, right? Mm-hmm. These people are living healthy without cordyceps. We cannot get so our scope creep cannot get so bad that we start killing people who are healthy because our whole point is to keep people healthy. This is this is absolutely a textbook case of scope scope creep where we have mm-hmm. this scope which is to defeat the cordyceps and we've allowed it to creep into what we're actually trying to accomplish and, and affect what we're trying to accomplish. Absolutely no unanimous decision from the board. What say you? I, I, I do agree. This is almost treating people like they're a fire break. It's like, you know, that, that idea that, you know, if you want to stop a fire from spreading, you need to clear out a part of the wilderness that's between what you want to protect and, and the actual fire. This, this is basically just trying to say, okay, we're going to stop the spread of the virus by just killing everybody that's in a circle around our community, just so there's no one in it that can spread it further. That is mo- that is unnecessarily monstrous. I mean, what's the point? You you are you are 
creating devastation and calling it peace. You're just leaving just a devastated world out there of just death and destruction and no other hope to be found under the idea that you only way we're going to win is by controlling this, and the only way you know how to control it is denying the enemy further resources, the enemy being the fungus. I am a registered that, Firefly voter. This is what's driven you to their particular polls in this election? Their, I'm in their party. I'm party affiliation, Firefly. I, I'm not fully affiliated yet, but if this is what's being offered on the on the platform of, of, the, of the federal party, I may have to at least go independent for this particular election cycle. Cannot support oh, this. Oh, good. Yeah, go independent, Spencer. Waste your vote. That's really good. Yeah, I, do that. That makes what? you feel really good when you leave the when you leave the polling place, but you actually accomplish nothing. That's good. What? I love when people do that. Hey, hey what did I do? I voted Libertarian. Oh, great. Ah, man, you really. I'm really glad you went out to the polls today. Good. Hey, it's it awesome. seems like if, if, if we could say anything from the visuals of this episode, it seems like the Green Party is winning. So you know, maybe Nader has my vote once again. Look, if you want to waste your gas, get into the polling place, please. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I think we're both out on this. I can understand to a certain degree the cold calculus of it, but it's it's unnecessarily monstrous. It, da- it does more damage to what you're trying to protect than what you're actually succeeded in saving. Uh, oh, so, so point number two for the board, then. Uh, it was, was discussed in this episode the morality, the ethics, the decision-making that's attached to taking people in during the apocalypse to the ability to make friends in the apocalypse. Where does the board stand on whether the risks justify the benefits in terms of taking in strangers when you have limited resources, whatever else, in an apocalyptic scenario? I think you have to use your best professional judgment, Spencer. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all here. I think there are. It's a judgment call on the circumstances. Necessarily, because, yeah, I mean, obviously it's bringing out the worst in a lot of people, the situation. So you can't just wholesale open your doors. I mean, you could, but you're just going to die. Um, I think you have to, I think, I think, but I also don't think you go the other way where it's absolutely off the table that you help anyone. Like you can't, you can't live that way either. So I think it's up to your professional judgments, case by case situation. I think that Bill and Frank did this particularly well. They're good yin and yang here, right? Cause Frank is a little too trusting. Bill is not quite trusting enough. And mm. together I think they get to the right answer and with the right analysis. I, I appreciate that very much. And as you said previously, it almost took having to meet a Frank to let them in there at the start. That if it hadn't been somebody necessarily of Frank's temperament and presentation of that temperament, we wouldn't have been inclined to offer him dinner. I agreed. All right. Last one. Let's get to it. Oh, assisted, assisted suicide, sir, Woo. followed up by double suicide occurring there at the end of this episode. Where do we stand on the ethics of either or both of these? I don't want anybody to commit suicide. I know I'm going out on a limb there. Um, mm-hmm. If you feel like you might self-harm, call someone. Uh, go check yourself into a place. There's absolutely no no shame in that at all. Many, many people do that. Have some people look after you for a while to make sure that you don't do something you may regret later or would regret later. But I still have a really hard time getting away from the fundamental belief that you that your life is about decisions, mm-hmm. but that's fundamentally what we are. We're we're a pod with brains that goes about an eighty year experiment of making decisions. Everything in your life is a built is a consequence of decisions you've made and that, that have built you to this place that you're at at any point in your life. Hard for me to get away from the idea that you, you don't you shouldn't have the ability to make that decision. Mm-hmm. I think you should have the ability. I don't want you to make it. 
I want you to get help if you feel like you might make it, but it's hard for me to, t- to morally say someone doesn't have the right to have a say of if they live or not. I'm, what say you? I have a similar mindset. I think it's something, I think it's something we need to be careful with because as a lot of other countries do with respect to it, it needs to be carefully vetted. It needs to be approved and discussed by qualified uh, you know, psychologists to assess the mental state of the person. This isn't a transient depression or anything else that's motivating them to reach this particular decision, that there is an end of life or pain event that is motivating this. But if we've reached that kind of call, if there is a, reg- if there is a regulated and administrative assessment of what's going on and going through the person's head, and it's reached the conclusion that they can understand what they're doing, this isn't a moment of depression or anything else that's motivating them to reach this kind of end-of-life call, I'm inclined to let them. I, I, I view it as part of an aspect of bodily autonomy, that if I can choose how to spend my life, I should have a certain degree of freedom in terms of choosing how to end it, so long as I'm of a proper state of mind to do so. I, I think Frank has gone about the right steps associated with this. I think he has, particularly in this, but if we're, if we're saying this in an apocalyptic state, your, your criteria for what those kind of moments are may even broaden somewhat, given limited resources or whatever else. But I, I am a person that believes that assisted suicide, that kind of controlling of how one chooses to exit the world should be viewed among the rights that people have. I, I don't, I understand the reasons and concerns about that, particularly with respect to how do you accurately assess whether somebody's just not depressed, whether somebody's just not had some very rough times in their life and isn't seeing the situation clearly or whatever else. That's a difficult criteria. It's difficult questions, but I think it's some questions that we should analyze, ponder and go through rather than just treat our concern with respect to them as an axiomatic bar and ever having this discussion. Well, I think there are people who have a religious problem with it and you have a religious problem with it. I respect that. And I think that, you know, you should be able to voice that and you should be able to run for office and try to affect change any way you want to. That's your, that's your right. Um, I would just, I would just vote against you in this situation and that's okay. We could still be friends. I, I'm going to reach across the aisle, Congressman Spencer. I absolutely would be just fine with people who disagree with me on this one, but Here's the thing, like, I think most people now, if you have a religious problem with it, that's a separate discussion. But I think most people would say, Frank, yeah, makes sense. Bill is the one that I think is a little more difficult to talk about because he just he just kills himself. Like, he's not sick. This isn't assisted suicide. This is just I'm just killing myself because I don't want to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. And it seems predicated on some pretty intense feelings he's having about a particular momentary situation, which is someone else's death. This is the one I feel like most people would want to claw back and say, wait a second, you you're just doing this because you're sad. Your partner's going to die. That sadness might like that sadness might go away. Like what we don't want to do is set a precedent in our society that every time your wife or, or husband dies, you just kill yourself. That's, that's not what we want. Right. Yeah. It's it, I would not approve from a particularly legal sense what Bill does to himself here. I think that it is driven by a particular moment of feeling, a profound moment of feeling, a justified moment of feeling, but one that I can't diagnose as appropriate. Come on, Bill. You gotta keep going. And what would motivate me here is that if Bill had told Frank that he was thinking about doing this, Frank would have prevented him. Frank probably would have not even allowed himself to die if he knew that Bill was going to try to do this. He would have lived a little longer if he could have stopped it. Yep. So, So I, I understand what they did. I understand Frank's point of view about it, that from a certain perspective, it's profoundly romantic. Couldn't 
I can't I can't get behind this one as having any legal justification going forward in our society. So that's a question for you. Who gives a shit if suicide's legal or not? Right? Well, doesn't apply die, in their but... world. Do whatever the fuck you want if you got the pills necessary to make it painless. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Bill, I don't I don't support. I mean, I, Bill has the right to do it. I think you should have the. I don't think suicide should be illegal. I think you should have the right to do it. Morally, I would try to talk Bill out of this. I'd say, Bill, you're upset. You're frustrated. You're, you're you're sad about losing your partner. But a lot of people lose their partners and keep going. A lot of people are able to, even later in life, able to create some existence that they can find joy. It's not over for you yet, Bill. Like, keep going. But whatever. It's his choice. Hey, Joel has found other people to protect. He's been able to deal through the loss of loved ones and find new meaning and purpose in the world through the aid of those around him. Who's to say that couldn't be accomplished for Bill? But his world and his perspective was embodied all in one person. And if he was going to give them the exit they wanted, he wanted to make the same decision. I won't, judge, I won't judge him for it. We're talking about some heavy stuff here, but I will say that I have seen people lose a partner. And I have seen them go on and start, basically start afresh and start another life and find joy. <clears throat> and while it really sucks to watch somebody lose someone, that rebuilding and reclaiming a life and starting a new, even if you're in your 60s, 70s, right? Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful thing to watch. That is, that is an awesome thing. And for somebody to be able to find, like, because in the moment, they think they'll never be happy again. Certainly. And yep. and and to see them find joy later. I mean, they're always going to miss their person. A part of their heart's always going to be that way. But to find joy later, it's a beautiful thing to see. It would have been cool to see Bill do the same thing. I agree. I mean, there's another, there's another concern about assisted suicide that I think we should voice to a certain degree is that its association with some very negative things with respect to sterilization and population control in the past about, you know, taking people that were disabled, whatever else, and having the government or the people decide to eliminate them for them not having value. That ain't what we're talking life. about. I know. But I think a lot of people that view assisted suicide associate it with that of where for a very long time, there was an aspect of society associated with Nazis or even just our own government and our own history that would view certain people as not having a life that was worth living and meaning and making that decision for them. And so I think people have a certain degree of discomfort with institutions allowing assisted suicide, given certain connotations of the government not sh- shouldn't, shouldn't, uh, not not wanting the government to be affiliated with that idea of deciding whether death should be inflicted on a person or whether death should be allowed for a person based on the value of their life. I don't agree with that read, but I understand where those people are coming from for due to that discomfort. Yeah. The sort of give a mouse a cookie with the government thing. Like we can't allow the, you know, they can't allow the thing that is morally somewhat acceptable or that we find plausible because the government will take it, run with it and do something we find morally objectionable. I get it. You, Eugenics. I was tr- struggling for the name of the phrase. Yeah, yeah. There. We're not. We're certainly not not a, not a proponent of that. Um, mm. That's to me. That's like I understand how people can associate them and worry that the government may stretch that ability, mm-hmm. uh, the the ability for assisted suicide to eugenics. But like I certainly, diff- to me, they're in two different corners of discussions. Right. I agree. Um, one is a person making their own decision. The other one is having that decision made for them. I will also just say that it's it's pretty easy. For uh, I just want to acknowledge for us sitting here in our 30s to be like, yeah, 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 I'm cool with assisted suicide. What what happens when we're we're 75, 80 and, we're, and our friends are dealing with this or we're dealing with this? I don't know. Maybe our, our position changes. I don't know. Uh, everybody's a everybody's a victim of your own experience. We can only talk from the perspective we're in. But that may change as I get older. I don't know. Fully acknowledged. And we can reassess this at a later point once that happens. We'll probably right. still be doing pods then. 
I think so, yeah. I'll be very curious to see the technology we're doing on it. I'm hoping for just an instant brain link. It'll make the recording process a lot easier. Hmm. Yes. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. It'll probably be easier to edit and upload them later. Because <laughs> that's still a pain in the ass. Okay. I think we're done with the episode. Spencer, any concluding thoughts on episode three, Last of Us? Anyone who has had any doubts before, I think they should be reassured that this show is made by people who have a certain massive amount of craft. Again, people that made the video game, people that made Chernobyl have come together to make a really high quality thing that, hey, let's give HBO credit. HBO can deliver these kind of moments and these kind of shows like nobody's business in a surprisingly reliable kind of way. This is just keeping to a wonderful trend in that regard. I am delighted in this episode. I am reassured of what else this show can accomplish. I'm excited to find out what the show can accomplish and how much it's going to surprise me in the process. I'm in, sir, and hope you are too. Yeah, me too. And uh, I, I think much better episode. I'm with it. I have faith in their storytelling, even though I don't love the premise and I don't really love where I know this has to go, which is addressing are that basically is humanity going to be wiped out? Are they going to find a cure? That's where this is eventually going. I don't care really. Mm. Um, cause we've lost 7 billion people in this world, but I do have faith in the storytelling. That is enough of a kernel that I would keep coming back absent the podcast. So I am at a place now, Spencer, where I'm not completely negative. You don't have to worry about me coming on here and just completely trashing the show. Cause I do, I do think there's a lot of quality in it. And you're right. HBO, man, we, I know we do a lot of HBO shows, but they bet they bet a very high percentage. Uh, and it's really impressive. I mean, hell, just the fact that we could have that. Think of the discussion we just had in the ethical question of the episode. Mm-hmm. That was a huge freewheeling conversation about a bunch of different moral topics, religious topics, societal, governmental topics. I don't think we've ever had such a discussion on a podcast before. So shout out to the show for that. Yeah, I, I want to give HBO credit. You're, you're, you're thinking, I heard somebody say this, and I think it's so so true. HBO is keeping the water cooler conversation alive. The, yep. the idea of people being able to cluster together and just spend the day after an episode talking about it, unpacking it, discussing their reactions, discussing yep. what it meant to them, pondering where it's going to go forward. So few, some people almost abandon that concept. And I think HBO runs on it still. Yeah, I agree. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Spencer, and I look forward to being back with everybody next week to review episode four of Last of Us. If you're enjoying this podcast, I can't imagine you've got to hour two if you're not enjoying at least somewhat our discussion, please subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, all that stuff really matters to us because we are not paid professionals. Nobody pays us to do this. Matter of fact, we pay money to do it. We put our time, our effort into doing it. The only reason we do it and put it out in the world is because we hope it makes people happier. And we hope you download it, you listen to it, you enjoy it, you have fun with it, that in some way we make your week better. If we're not doing that with people, Spencer and I would just be on the phone chat with each other. So please give us that feedback if you'd like to see it. That's why we're doing this. Thanks everybody. We'll be back with you next week for episode four of Last of Us.